Good afternoon, everybody. We will uh, begin our fourth presentation of the work groups, and um, I have two announcements. One, uh, Renee is passing, Representative Schulte is passing a, uh, a schedule around. I've asked if we could consider changing our ne uh, next meeting um, away from December 15th. That's a personal conflict for me, and so we're seeing if there's a strong consensus on five other dates. So she'll be passing that around. Secondly, um, we have the benefit of some more treats up here. Um, they, are, they are baked by Sue Lertle. So she, you know they're good. You know they're toxic free. And, there's, and there are no calories in these. This is much different than our morning treat. And we invite the audience to circle around here if you want to come up and get some. Just don't take the last piece of any of it. Just a little political advice. So um, now we have uh, David Boyd and uh, Donna Richard Langer from DHS on the um, Judicial DHS Workgroup. Now, red dots now on. Can you hear? There we go. I've been instructed. I've got to be very close to this. So, <laughs> if I if I fall away, somebody just uh, point in my direction, and I'll try to get straightened out. Uh, My name is David Boyd. I'm the State Court Administrator and co-chair of the Judicial Branch DHS Work Group. Um, just so that we're all on the same page, um, and by the way, it's a it's a, a real pleasure to uh, to be here today and and to to share in in this process. Uh, just to be sure that we're all on the same page and and have a little bit of background. Our work group might be a little bit different than the other work groups. Uh, our work group actually started doing some work a year ago uh, in the, uh, the summer and fall of 2010 uh, in response to some intent language in the DHS appropriations bill for FY11 asking uh, the department and the judicial branch to pull together some folks to uh, to look at the involuntary commitment process uh, under Chapter 229. Um, at that time, we had identified a, um, a number of, of potential issues, in, including the, the, the uh, cost of the commitment process, um, the ever-increasing burden on our uh, magistrates around the state on the emergency side of mental health as well as substance abuse commitments, uh, the fact that the commitment process in many places around the state varies from one community to another. Uh, and then finally, one of the biggest headaches for a lot of people involved in the 229 process, which is finding an available bed and, and hopefully not having people racing from uh, northeast Iowa or south central Iowa to Sioux City just to get to the one bed that was available. 
So we already uh, we had some issues, and we put together a, a work group at that time. There were about 14 on that particular work group last uh, summer and fall and identified uh, 58, 58, somewhere in that range, uh, issues just with Chapter 229. Um, we frankly didn't have a lot of consensus on how to resolve those 58 however um, and it was our intention really to to try to go back at that this summer and fall uh, but then I think we were either uh, I'm not sure if we were rewarded or punished but in any event along came Senate file 525 uh, and and you all uh, opted to ask our group to come back together uh, to expand on the on the stakeholders and the players at the table uh, and to deal with nine specific issues that you identified for us uh, we did that our group uh, I think is now in the vicinity of at least 25 you know give or take uh, we have representatives from um, the judicial branch in terms of judges magistrate uh, uh, district uh, court clerk, uh, district court administration. We have uh, private agencies in, in the group, the ombudsman's office, um, the DHS mental um, health institutions, the Department of Corrections, the Iowa Hospital Association, um, the Attorney General's office, the Olmstead Consumer Task Force, CPCs, county sheriffs, substance abuse providers, etc. So we have a, a well-rounded, large uh, group, and they our members come from all four corners uh, of the state. So um, we tried to to have both um, a geographical balance as well. As I mentioned a minute ago, uh, specifically we were asked to look at um, nine items and the summary document of our work group that, that went out with your materials uh, basically <clears throat> organizes our recommendations under each of those nine specific items that areas that you asked us to look at and my intent uh, and I'm happy to I'll, I'll, I'll do as instructed from the chairs, uh, but I mean, my, my intent is to, to try to just get through the, the basic recommendations as, as quickly as I can and then uh, leave uh, most of the time for, for your questions. But um, one of the first areas of, that we were asked to look at uh, has to do with the, uh, the issue of transportation. Uh, transportation of individuals who are involved in the commitment process uh, it does take up a serious amount of time both in and manpower uh, but it's something that's uh, that needs to be addressed by keeping the focus on on safety efficiency and the needs of the particular consumer uh, ultimately our our group recommended that that there does need to be transportation provided. Uh, it would be helpful under the new system of regions uh, that there be a transportation coordinator 
who could assist in putting together a system of transportation, uh, both at, at the beginning and throughout the uh, uh, committal process. The second area has to do with pre-commitment screening prior to the filing of, a, of an involuntary commitment procedure under uh, Chapter 229. Uh, we recommend that there be such a pre-screening process and that it should be a core service. Just as a, a, a bit of background about uh, the pre-screening process, uh, there was a program going in Warren County from 2007 until earlier this year where when someone came into the clerk's office and wanted to file for, for an involuntary commitment, uh, they were given the opportunity to uh, speak to a, a, a mental health uh, practitioner or professional uh, who would work with them to see what the issues are. Uh, and it wasn't mandatory. They... they they could reject that and just simply go into the into the formal process, but they were given that opportunity, uh, and the the data over those four years showed that 60 percent, 60 percent of those coming into the clerk's office to file uh, an involuntary commitment proceeding uh, were identified as a <clears throat> um, not being appropriate for an involuntary uh, commitment and that they were more appropriately referred to their primary care physician, uh, a substance abuse treatment center, outpatient treatment, or some other treatment in the community. Uh, the program uh, is currently not in operation, and that's simply because um, a complaint was, uh, was brought uh, to the court that there is no provision in Chapter 229 for such a pre-screening uh, program and so our group has recommended that there be statutory authority to have pre-screening processes in place within a region uh, that hopefully uh, might have similar results to what was going on in Warren County the next area has to do with uh, um, a request that we look at holding, having an involuntary hold of a patient under Chapter 229 for not more than 23 hours uh, who was not initially taken into custody uh, but declined to be examined. Our response uh, to that is basically that the, and Representative Smith and I were having a conversation here just a few minutes ago about some things having to do with, with Chapter 229, and we're, we're coming up soon on the 40th anniversary of Chapter 229, and, and there has been no real um, uh, study of Chapter 229 in those 40 years or any significant change to Chapter 229. And, and we, in the judicial branch for some time, have thought that it might be time to take a look at Chapter 229 and see if what's there fits the way, um, you know, fits today's society the way people thought it did back in the, in the middle 70s when, uh, when it was adopted. Uh, and 
in in many ways the uh, this particular provision uh, would be very similar frankly uh, to the to the uh, pre-commitment screening process basically um, there are some some counties around the state that that do have some some beds available for this process um, and have used that in the past but it's it's um, <clears throat> It's not available everywhere. Let's put it put it that way. One of the things that was that's in Chapter 229 right now that that we think maybe needs to be looked at is the fact that back in the 70s when it was written, there's the 229 involuntary commitment process that takes place between 8 and 4:30, and then there's a separate process that takes place between 4:30 in the afternoon and 8 o'clock the next morning called the emergency process um, and our group is basically uh, suggesting that that we need to kind of maybe move away from that distinction and and treat uh, treat mental health commitment proceedings basically uh, uh, under the same system 24 7 now one thing that that would require uh, would would be to, in addition to working on 229, judicial magistrates in our system do a number of, uh, of the mental health proceedings, and but under the jurisdiction of magistrates, um, only law-trained magistrates can do a 229 hearing, a, a regular 229 hearing. Any magistrate can do an emergency proceeding and this would basically require uh, looking at allowing uh, lay magistrates to do the same thing that law trained magistrates do in terms of mental health of the hundred and just so you have some idea of 152 magistrates in Iowa today uh, and we have a statutory requirement that going forward new magistrates be law trained all of them but right now we still have about 14 uh, lay magistrates that um, that work in the system. Um, we were also asked to look at the um, chapter 229, the the definition of qualified mental health professional, and the references thereto. Um, basically, there's a there's a um, in chapter 229 there is a definition of a. Um, Qualified mental health professional. If you look at Chapter 228, you'll find a definition for a mental health professional. They're not the same, and they're not used interchangeably. As we began to look at this issue, uh, the work group eventually came to the conclusion that we really could get by without any definition in Chapter 229 uh, because the, the work group believes that physician should uh, uh, be involved in the examination of the patient and providing a report back to the court during the committal process and the, the uh, physician gets their input from other professionals and can incorporate that uh, into their report. We do support um, the addition of or the provision 
adding a provision that would allow a psychiatric advanced registered nurse practitioner uh, to report on an annual basis to the court on outpatient committals. Another area that's been of some interest for some time has to do with the mental health advocates. Uh, mental health advocates kind of live out there in uh, no man's land, so to speak. Uh, they are by statute appointed by the chief judge of a district for a particular county. They're paid by the county, uh, but there is no one single source that's actually in charge giving direction, uh, etc. And our work group is recommending that um, that the they're, they're, that the advocates be brought somehow into a state system uh, with a, a using the uniform job description that our district court administrators and chief judges have worked up through our uh, judicial council. Um, we recommend that there be by putting them into one state system uh, that way get more better uniformity, get training. Um, and have advocates appointed based on where the, the case actually uh, is occurring. Um, we recommend that if they are brought into one system that it be uh, autonomous. Uh, it can't be in the Department of Human Services. It should not be in the judicial branch either because um, the advocates need to tell judges what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. <laughs> um, and the, we throw out, just so um, we're clear on this, we throw out a couple of examples of what we mean by, um, by having a, a particular uh, structure. And we, we use the Child Advocacy Board in the Department of Inspections and Appeals or the CASA program uh, or the Public Defender program uh, uh, as examples of housing it somewhere in the state that can then uh, can bring about the uniformity. Another area we were, to look, we were asked to look at uh, dealt with uh, jail diversion programs and we recommend that that there be comprehensive jail diversion programs uh, adopted and, and be a core service. Uh, we recommend that there <clears throat> specialty training for those in law enforcement and corrections that's similar to uh, what's currently being done in a lot of places in crisis intervention training or mental health first aid. We also suggest that we sh the state should look at mental health courts that provide both a diversion and a condition of sentencing uh, model. There is a program up in Blackhawk County at the present time, for example, that, that that's running a mental health court in conjunction with uh, the Department of Corrections. Uh, the, or in the first three years, I believe, of, of looking at that in Blackhawk and Dubuque counties, 74% um, of the uh, defendants coming in contact with that program uh, were successfully uh, uh, were successful in getting back into um, their community. 
to be re-entered into the community. One downside to those programs uh, that I always have to mention is, is that just like with drug courts, for example, um, they're very labor-intensive. Um, and so at some point in time, they, they will take additional resources, uh, at least on the judicial branch side. One area that came up late in the legislative session and that was uh, included in, in our charge had to do with uh, the residential care facility issue. Um, we've had some discussion about that and, and we do believe that we need to work on ways so that placement in one of those centers occurs only after notification and acceptance by the facility. Um, I think there's there's a lot of work that probably uh, still needs to be done in the in the area of residential care facility and and unfortunately we continue to see um, more stories that um, um, that demonstrate that need one thing we were able to do as a as a first step in the, ju the judicial branch itself back in in June at our annual uh, training session for magistrates. We uh, we had part of a day that was a multidisciplinary training that had our magistrates there as well as um, uh, <clears throat> uh, health professionals as well as uh, residential care facility uh, individuals all all in the same room at the same time talking. I mean, it didn't go far enough, but it was a it was at least a a first step. And then our final um, area was to look at, you know, new and promising uh, reforms that are coming along in the area of mental health and, and the criminal justice system. Um, that's very similar to, to our conversations that we had dealing with the jail diversion program. Um, we had several presentations that dealt with uh, different different areas in terms of uh, mental health as well as the criminal justice system uh, and I think we need to go from there ah, and I did skip over the uh, <clears throat> recommendation on comprehensive training of law enforcement for dealing with people in crises we we did uh, have a presentation from those at the uh, law enforcement academy um, not everyone goes there, so there's not one single curriculum, uh, and, and we believe that there needs to be <clears throat> more done in this area to, in terms of training law enforcement officers both on the front end as well as um, ongoing training. Have I missed anything else, Donna? I think that's the, those are the highlights of what our of what our group has <clears throat> has done this summer and fall and our and our initial recommendations to you, and I'm happy to uh, try to take on questions. 
Thanks. Um, I just wanted to make a couple of comments um, on this work group that I think Representative Garrett attended every one of the meetings or a good number of the meetings and uh, worked well with this group as well. But um, I think some of these changes uh, in 229 in the committal process, right now we have uh, three different laws that deal with this, 222 for people with intellectual disabilities, 125 for people with substance-related disorders, and also then 229. And when this legislation came out in the mid-70s, it was model legislation that took away the old, uh, what were referred to as insane boards, where uh, a three-person board was put together and uh, made a recommendation on whether a person went for treatment on an involuntary basis. But um, we have some things to clean up with this. I propose the 23-hour hold because we have a number get into a um, uh, agitated state room um, and um, they uh, no longer feel that they need that care. Lots of times uh, then we can avert long uh, rides to the uh, four mental health institutes, things like that, if we make some changes. The Iowa Psychiatric uh, Society and uh, this work group both proposed that if we just make that change on the 48-hour hold that currently goes into place when the clerk's offices are closed, that will give us the same thing, and I think that will be a good move for us. So I'm pleased that Representative Garrett um, and Representative Wolf have agreed to continue working on these issues. Thank you. Um, uh, one thing I I don't recall that we discussed that specifically, um, but we certainly, uh, particularly working with the community-based corrections, with the adult community-based corrections, it could be done on a regional basis. Now, the regions aren't necessarily going to match our judicial districts, but I understand. But, I mean, I think, I think there are ways of dealing with that, yes. I'm not afraid to say I don't know. 
Um, it's <laughs> often the best answer you can give, but I, I'm not that close to how the, this, these, this one process would work. Give me a kind of an example uh, of a pre-commitment screening for involuntary commitment. Just, just you know, can you do that briefly? Like, wh- what would it be like? What would it be like? I mean, uh, you know, because I, I just don't know. You want to, Donna? I'll let. Um, we talked very specifically about what that would look like, mainly based on what was shared with us that happened in Warren County. But we expanded on that too, and it would be uh, a mental health professional that would, and we're looking at pre-commitment screening. So this is a screening that would allow us to identify what are the best options for this person in front of me. Is commitment the best solution to what they're presenting? So we do a a psychosocial. We find out what's happened before. We find out the, uh, we hopefully have family members present that can give us more information. And, and based on everything that we can find out about what's happened with this person, what resources are available to us, we need to, as a professional, make a recommendation on what we think would be the best way to help. And so it's, it's a really, it's a, a wonderful way to look at um, with the family that in crisis it doesn't have to be commitment, that we can look at other options. And sometimes just getting them together to talk together can de-escalate and allow them to consider other options. So, um, but it's it's usually a process of you know maybe an hour or two. It's not a you know it's not a hours and hours. It's maybe an hour or two of asking um, the family and the individual lots of questions. But it, w- it wouldn't necessarily involve a, a criminal act or anything like that. It would no, just be, okay, no, it could though, or could it? No. First, first of all, um, under the current law, what happens is if it's between the hours of 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. on a day that the clerk of court's office is open, two people file a, uh, uh, affidavits alleging the person is seriously mentally impaired. The judge looks at those papers and if it's during the office hours, issues an order to pick up the person or orders a hearing of the person. Um, so, so that's what. So we have a two-phase system. So that's what happens while the clerk's office is open. There is no provision for any mental health professional in the community to evaluate that person. So, someone from Marshalltown, based on that, may be picked up and transported to Cherokee um, Mental Health Institute without any kind of interaction with the mental health professional. After hours, then uh, there can be an, uh, the person can be picked up by law enforcement, taken to the closest medical facility, which usually has a mental health professional evaluate the person, and then um, an order is secured from the magistrate uh, or the judge on call to uh, take the action. What I'm looking for with this is that uh, there are people who get themselves worked up and get into an emergency room of a hospital or some safe environment, and as we observe them for a period of time, we uh, they settle down, and we feel that we do not need to commit the person. It can be handled in other ways. And so this would make the system uniform. The 48-hour hold can be a transport to a mental health facility, or it can be to that willing hospital to provide those services. And we then often can um, not incur those costs for care that's unnecessary. And, and if I can just add on, too, that, that in many cases, um, 
you know, families might be in, in some kind of crisis and they're trying to deal with a loved one and they find out about the involuntary commitment process and they, they go there first when in fact there may be lots of other resources in that community that are more appropriate be through the community health center, mental health center, a substance abuse program or something, and they really don't need to get stigmatized with a 229 case. think so. Well, we often find ways around statutes. Uh, I mean, that's basically, I mean, that's sort of what was going on in Warren County until somebody raised the issue that there's no statutory authority. Okay, because sometimes we have situations where, right, I, I mean, the judge reads the paperwork and it's clear that this person probably does have a mental illness and can't make decisions in that. But if the person's willing to, you know, get themselves to Bridgeview and cooperate, they don't have to... We can do a... Right. When somebody is willing to cooperate, we can do a lot. Okay. So this would be... The, and then my other question is, um, what about... And, and maybe it's in here and I just didn't see it. Some training for the actual magistrates who are making these calls as to whether... Yes. Because there does seem to be... It, there's a lot of discretion involved. And I don't know if you have any sense of whether that discretion is being exercised um, kind of different depending on the part of the state you're in. Do you see a lot more people being committed per number of commitments filed in certain parts of the state? We, at the moment, I can't answer that question, but we, I do hope to be able to answer it in the near future. But I, I, at the moment, I can't. But what I, what I would like to say about the magistrates, one of the things um, uh, I would say that, you know, that, that magistrates uh, are in need of, of continuous training on the mental health situation, because in a lot of small rural counties, um, they might not have the caseload that other magistrates uh, might have and, and are more familiar with. But the other thing that, that we think is, is really important as we continue to move forward is multidisciplinary training so that we have the magistrates and we have the medical profession and, and uh, in, in one room uh, hearing and talking to each other as well as the providers and so that everybody uh, is hearing the same thing and also trying to come to a common understanding um, of what certain terms mean and I, I apologize the example doesn't come right off the top of my head but I can tell you that in working through some of the forms promulgated by by my bosses um, terms that 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 in the legal community mean one thing can mean something a whole lot different to the medical community and and we have some forms that might even 
take people in a circular motion and keep people committed longer than they should be just because uh, people aren't using the same words in, in the same way and the same don't, don't have the same terminology. And so we think we need to do a lot of work there too. Quick questions, David. So, with the with the creation of regions, and perhaps more than one judiciary district involved in a region, there really you don't foresee any problems in creating regions and addressing the issue. Well, what I would uh, the only thing I can use as an example uh, has to do with. Um, DHS regions or DHS service areas. I mean, in my 34 and a half years now or whatever, I mean, there, we've gone through several versions in DHS of, of regions or service areas. Um, and we've been able, I think, successfully through our, our chief juvenile court officers, we've been able, on, on juvenile issues, we've been able to, to deal with that. It's just uh, it takes a little more effort and a little more coordination, but okay. I think we can do that. Um, my other question is: um, early, early in this process, uh, in information gathering, um, well, I guess when the task force went around the state and we're visiting the different mental health institutes, the issue of commitment came up and how. The judge really wasn't presented, perhaps, with accurate information before they made their committal. And so we said, okay, we're going to go to work on that and make sure that when we hand the request or whatever to the judge, they have something to look at before they make their decision on where this person is going to go. Because I think that was the issue. Are we sending them to an acute level of care when perhaps they should not be committed to that acute level. The judge is independent. Uh, he's an independent, uh, he or she is an independent person. What do we have in place or what should we have in place that would strongly encourage the judge to make the correct level of commitment, if you know what I mean? Why send a, a patient to a place at $900 a day Mm -hmm. when they could go to a sub-level of care or be sent there first for a whole lot less money and prevent the, the, the backup on available acute care beds. I mean, can you? Well, thanks for letting me respond to that, too. I know you asked this to David Boyd. Uh, but um, I think both your question and uh, Representative Wolf's question are answered by having a good quality pre-screening program in. Uh, a magistrate, uh, to become a mental health professional is a fairly rigorous standard. And uh, these are difficult decisions. And just training the magistrates in this area isn't going to do it. There needs to be collaboration on these decisions. And if we get that, then we can avert many of those more costly levels of care and respect the dignity of the patient. I think that um, I would just add on that I, I think it isn't an issue of education and training. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming that 
that your question, Representative Heaton, goes after the recommendation comes back from the doctor because um, the in terms of the, the the judge doesn't have a lot a lot of times the magistrate or judge really doesn't have a lot of information before they order someone to at least go be evaluated um, what's probably the bigger issue is then once that evaluation is done you know where are they going and and oftentimes right now um, when I say education and training I we, we need to be sure, though, that that the the beds that we have available in Iowa match, you know, what the needs are. Because as as it is right now, in in many cases, it's where can we find a bed? Because this person, the judge has made the decision that this person does need to be committed. Um. But then it's a question of, is there a bed available in the right place? And sometimes there may or there may not be. And then, you know, what do you do with the individual while you're waiting for that bed to get free? Or do you send that person to another bed, to another facility that maybe doesn't have the exact programming that you're looking for, but at least it does have a bed? It's a point, one of the points that bothers me is in your list here, it says that if you're going to send a person to an RCF, you have to clear it with the RCF before the person is sent there. That means they have a right of refusal. So I'm thinking of trying to move a person from one, from a, from an acute level and moving a person on down to a subacute level. And the judge could say, we're moving you now to a lower level of care. However, if, if, if the RCF says no, then he's gonna, the person will continue to languish at the, at the hospital. I'm just, I'm just saying that in the I way, in saying, the way our pattern exists right now, the question is who's going to buy the who's going to buy the treatment, the state in the hospital, or the county in the RCF, and the reluctance of maybe saying we'd rather have them stay in the hospital from a selfish point of view. You get what I mean? How do we work our way through this so that we don't have these these barriers to this and the self-interest to this? as we create regions, how do we deal with that? I'm gonna borrow from Senator Johnson and admit that I don't have the answer to your question. It is a very difficult issue and it's one we need to continue to work on. Anybody in the group wanna? All right. I'm Diane Breck, and I'm an executive director for RCF in Delaware County. You're going to be hearing from me later this afternoon, but in response to your question, there's a multitude of problems with moving people from one level of care to another. Um, the way the rules are currently set up, they, the individual has to be screened by the facility, 
and then there are certain admission criteria that have to be met, like a current physical, a current TB test. Those are the kinds of things that sometimes put a barrier in place. The, the other thing that comes into place is funding. We have to have a funding stream in place in order for us to be able to accept the client into our programs. And then the, the other piece of it that we need is we need enough, we need to know that we're able to safely serve that individual. And currently, a lot of the RCFs are serving that subacute level of care person in our facilities right now. And if we could find a way to um, change some of the admission processes or some of that screening processes that are required, um, we could probably maybe make that transition a little bit smoother than it is now and maybe have some of those beds available in order to serve some of those people who don't need the acute care level of care but could be served, <clears throat> excuse me, could be served in our facilities in more of a subacute manner or, or in the RCF PMIs also. I want to bring up is the existence of the RCF PMI. Uh, we have 12 of them, I think, left in the state. We, we do. We and have three major facilities. Mm -hmm, we do. And, and one of the things that you're currently seeing happening right now with the lack of funding is in Lynn County, and they have a 64-bed RCF PMI unit now that they're looking at moving those people into the community because there's not funding to serve them. So they're not able to access Medicaid dollars right now under the current system that they have in place. So if the funding mechanisms were changed, it, there's a possibility that those people could be served. And, and, in, and in the reverse of that is moving from the community setting. Not everybody needs to go to the acute care setting. Some of those individuals could be served in crisis beds in PMI units and RCFs if the right kind of staffing were in place and if the the, we could modify the current rules so that we could do those kinds of services in our facilities. So what do you mean by changing the funding mechanism? Well, currently, in order, for example, in my facility, before I can admit someone to our facility, I have to know that I'm going to be paid for the services. So I have to go to the county and ask mm -hmm. the county if they will fund that individual in our facility. Yes. Yeah. So if they say no... Then we don't serve them. Then that person can't move to a sublevel of care. Correct. In my facility, that's the way that I do it. So, are you, I mean, Lynn County has a collective problem. In other words, if you looked at all of their mental health services, they have a problem. Did the PMI cause that problem? I mean, can they trace that directly to that problem? I'm talking, I mean, what I'm asking here is we need sub-level of care. We and do. to put it at risk because you can't get the dollars from that entity to provide the services. You get where I'm going? Yes, I do. That even if we regionalize and we combine state dollars with local dollars, the levy that provides those funds, they're part of those funds, might also still prevent and create a barrier to having access to that level of care. That We've got to solve this issue because we should have a seamless system. It shouldn't be. And I think that's one of the things that we have to wrestle with mm -hmm. to prevent this kind of saying no to yes, because we want to save money at the hospital level. 
if you get what I mean, and create access to those beds when we've got a backlog. You know what I mean? And we and by by having that subacute level of care, it, it in in the end it's going to save money because you're going to not use up those acute care beds, and those people who really need to be in that acute care system are going to have access to those beds. I mean, there are times when it takes us. 10 hospital calls before we can find a bed to provide services for the individuals that need that acute level of care. I, I guess perhaps if we were to limit, or in other words, cap the amount of state money that would go to a region, you know where I'm coming from? Capitate it. Say, here is your state money. Then there's pressure on the region to emphasize the need to facilitate more use of subacute care and to prevent excess days or unneeded days at the hospital level because they're only going to get so much state money. See what I mean? So it all becomes a part of trying to do the most efficient thing. I would agree with some of that. Although we, re we serve people from all across the state so we don't just serve people within our county or within our region. I might get referrals from um, the other side of the state. So if, if my level of care is where that person can best be served and they're coming from that other region to be served in my facility, we could possibly do that. But they're all in the same boat because they're capped too is the amount of state dollars. So it would pay them to seek the most efficient level of care for their constituents. Or, yeah. All right, just an idea. All right, thank you. I would, could, uh, Director Palmer, could you comment on, on maybe capping the amount of state money at the regional level? Well, I think, I think I'd refer to it as a global budget. Obviously, the region is going to have a finite amount of money. So, therefore, you have a, quote, capped amount of money. So that happens automatically, no matter what the source of the money. I don't think the issue is related to the fact that this money is coming from levied money or non-levied money. I think in part it has to do with is it in the county plan and does the county have the funding uh, to be able to pay for it because you might have the county next door that it's in the plan or they have sufficient money and so they are going to go ahead and pay for it. So we'll go back to a similar question that you asked me earlier. If this becomes a core service and is a given, then uh, then that is in the in the plan and what would need to be paid for uh, by the region. And to your point, uh, the most cost-effective services are going to be uh, in an open market, trying to make your money stretch as far as possible. The ones you're going to go to first, so you would were appropriate. Subacute would be chosen over acute if. Acute was not necessary. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, I had a question. Uh, first, thank you to the Judicial DHS Work Group for all your work. Appreciate it. Um, uh, regarding the uh, mental health courts, uh, David, you mentioned, and I wonder, I, I don't know much about that. I know we've had some pretty good success with our drug courts. Uh, I think a most, in most districts, a dedicated judge, I think, state appropriation somewhere between two and $300,000 per district, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. I'm wondering what kinds of people are, would be seen in mental health courts. Could the same drug court judges be, 
be involved with that and and what would it co- what would it cost um, to to move ahead uh, and, and what kind of people what kind of folks would show up at a mental health court what kind of crimes uh, and what kind of supports would they would the court need to divert them the the, the yeah the the first part is that the the first part of the answer is <clears throat> is that uh, in many ways because it is very similar to uh, to drug courts, uh, it very it can be done by the same judge as long as there's time. It's just that it takes away from you know from from the other workload that that a district has. The um, um, these are I was trying to see if I could find real quick, but I mean in the example that I, that we have in Iowa right now, like in the Blackhawk in the first judicial district area, um, these are all serious and aggravated misdemeanors um, and and people that have been in the system and out of the system and and back in these are not like simple misdemeanors or, or those types of things, so you do have the uh, ability to you know kind of hold over their head you know we're not going to take you back in and revoke your probation or your parole if you do this and you get and you you get things taken care of and as i say i think in uh, at least in dubuque and in waterloo i think it was in the vicinity of 70 74 percent uh over three years did not recidivate and go back an actual cost for what it would do what it would take to do something like that statewide, I I haven't put the numbers to those together yet. Thank you. Um, going back to the comprehensive jail diversion program that is a core mm-hmm. service, wouldn't it make more sense to just have each region? have a jail diversion program as opposed to having it be a core service um, providing it but I mean I think that as opposed to I think having it listed I out think, as I think part that's of the kind of what we services. really meant so I mean okay. I, think I think we're on that's, the same page yeah. and then the other thing is how juveniles did you in this group we so far anyway we have not dealt with okay with the juvenile situation, because I mean, just seeing more there. of a trend, and so okay, thank you. I'm afraid it is. We had a request if you would introduce your panel members that came with you from Bot- oh, that are behind. Oh, thank you. I'd- yeah, please do that before we switch out to the next group. Um, I, I have to apologize. I didn't see everyone. Um, before I sat down, and I didn't realize I had so much support back there. Otherwise, I would have turned this over to them some time ago. But anyway, uh, you 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 heard from Diane Breck, um, who is <clears throat> with uh, Pen Inc. Uh, uh, Linda Brundy's from the uh, Ombudsman's office is here. Uh, Marianne Gibson. Um, what's the name of your Robanzi? Uh, center and uh, Jerry Mays is here. I saw Jerry. And uh, is Tom here? Nope. Okay. Um, 
do do. Who else is here? Story County. Deb. Deb Shildroth is here. Yes. There's there's Deb. Okay. That's it. Thank you, and I apologize for that. Thank you very much. And this group will be an ongoing group, so we expect to hear more from you in the coming years. (laughs) You bet. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Next, we're going to have up for you the group for the um, Adult Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities Work Group. If they'll switch out up here, we'll get started again. Right. Looks like we're right on time, which is kind of shocking for two o'clock. All right. So two o'clock, we're going to be talking about the intellectual developmental disability support group, and we thank you both for being here. If you all introduce yourselves and those that are with your group, we will start from there. Thank you. Okay. Um, my name is Bob Bacon, and I direct Iowa's University Center for Excellence on Disabilities at uh, the University of Iowa. Um, I was uh, the co-chair of the IDDD work group um, was chaired by Carolyn Coons. Rick Schultz, um, do you want to introduce him? Um, <coughs> okay. Uh, <coughs> Rick Schultz uh, took over the chairpersonship um, as the baton was passed from Carolyn to him um, in, uh, for, the, for the final meeting. Um, uh, I guess I, I would like to begin by, by thanking you for what you are all doing here. I mean, this putting in a day like this, caring so much about these issues, um, it's, it's, it, it's needed and it's, and it's much appreciated. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> what I will be doing today um, is, uh, in the context of presenting the work group, I'm going to be talking some about best practice in the IDDD world because I think that that's particularly important in terms of understanding where we are and where we need to go. Um, Because this process was so well coordinated by the Department of Human Services and by the excellent um, consultants that we have, Steve, and then in terms of the IDDD workgroup, subcontracting with the Human Services Research Institute, we really did benefit from people who could help us see where Iowa stands in relation to other states, and that's that's particularly important. 
I think, though, I will start by acknowledging the other members of the group, um, as seems to be the protocol. Um, we did have a very um, diverse group, a, an appropriate cross-section of, of stakeholders in the IDDD world. Um, we had Jim Aberg, who was the services director for Opportunity Village in Clear Lake. Ron Askland, the, the CEO of Horizons Unlimited in Emmitsburg. Mary Dubert, who was now a community volunteer in Davenport. Marsha Edgington-Bott, the superintendent of the Woodward Resource Center. Don Francis, the executive director of the Statewide Independent Living Council. Um, <clears throat> Stephanie Gelhar, uh, the executive director of Mosaic. Um, based in Osceola. Um, Jan Heideman, the, the CPC uh, in Bremer County. Um, we had Terry Johnson, uh, the CEO of Jenison uh, Development in Jefferson. Cindy Kastner, Executive Director of the Abbey Center for Community Mental Health um, in Newell, also a member of the Mental Health and Disability Services Commission. Roger Lusala, Executive Director of the Mayor's Youth Employment Program in Iowa City. Mia Peterson, a consumer and advocate from Des Moines. Susan Sihas, Services Director from Exceptional Persons in Waterloo. And Dale Todd, a family member of an individual with disabilities, a member of the Mental Health and Disability Services um, um, Commission. <clears throat> um, Okay, I, what I'll do is go over the recommendations, and um, I will also acknowledge, in addition to talking about best practice, where we had consensus, and those uh, few significant areas where we, where we ne didn't necessarily. Um, but, and, and to preface that, um, I think what Director Palmer said this morning about where we're going in terms of um, going, taking the system to the next level. That, that is the, the right way to look at it. It's not about uh, criticizing the status quo. We're always building on what comes before us. Um, but so that said, um, um, I will quickly comment on the multi-occurring disability, co-occurring um, disability um, recommendation that came out of our group. Chris Atchison did a good job this morning of talking about um, what that means from the perspective of the adult mental health group. Um, the IDD uh, group definitely concurs with the need for the system to be multi-occurring capable. Um, and the only thing I would add to what Chris said this morning is that we want to reinforce that um, or to ensure that all components of the redesign, so core services, outcomes, performance measures, provider standards, and workforce development, all be premised on the consideration of the needs of the, that people present with complex needs. It's not just a services issue, in other words. Um, if, if we say that that's the case, then we have to build our system so that that we keep that in mind as far as workforce, so that we keep that in mind and we measure it in terms of how well we're, we're uh, good of a job we're doing, and so forth. Um, 
Okay, as far as um, moving on to eligibility, um, I think um, it's important to recognize that states and the federal government have framed eligibility criteria for individuals with intellectual disabilities um, in, a, in, a, in a way that has been evolving substantially over time. Um, in the past, eligibility for services um, for individuals with intellectual disabilities, you know, called mental retardation um, back then, was basically limited to a narrow definition um, from an IQ test. But not only has the term been mental retardation been replaced by the term intellectual disability, um, standards have moved uh, way beyond relying exclusively on an IQ test um, to assessments of a person's functioning, abilities, and most importantly, needs for support. And we're not talking about an assessment that just identifies deficits. We're talking about an assessment that says, what will it take for this person to be successful in the community? And therefore, the first recommendation is that uh, we utilize a standardized assessment tool to evaluate support needs. Um, there was actually one tool recommended the Supports Intensity Scale, um, developed by the American Association on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities. Um, there is a pilot of that tool going on in Iowa right now. It's also important to um, recognize that um, when we talk about using a uh, standardized assessment tool to evaluate support needs, we're also suggesting that it be used for resource allocation. In terms of best practice, other states are moving to that. About 10 states now are, are, are doing that. There are 25 states that use the supports intensity scale currently. Um, you know, I, I looked at the materials from your October 24th meeting, and you are, there is a lot of money, as you well know, that goes into the IDDD system. And as resources shrink, it makes sense to make sure that those resources are being allocated so that people get what they need, exactly what they need, but not more than, not more than they need. Um, also on the theme of assessment, um, we are recommending standardizing the eligibility process so that tools and processes are, are streamlined. Um, there, there's a lot, there are all kinds of assessments that are done right now in the system. Um, level of care, level of care redeterminations, um, assessments for support planning. One of the themes that ran through virtually every one of our meetings is the idea of, of definitely streamlining and, and, and eliminating redundancy where it exists in terms of assessment processes. Um, um, another, um, when, when talking about functional assessment, which is basically what we're doing, that's a segue to talking about the recommendation about expanding the intellectual disabilities waiver to include individuals with developmental disabilities. That is um, something that, again, in terms of best practice, um, most states now have eligibility for um, expressed in terms of the developmental disabilities as opposed to intellectual disabilities. Um, and in Iowa, um, this 
there, there, this would be a, a really profound change for the system. Um, one thing to, in terms of talking a bit about history, believe it or not, the intellectual disability waiver is only about 20 years old. And when it was created in Iowa back, back then, we didn't take advantage of the opportunity that was available to us then to include not only mental retardation, but um, related conditions. Um, related conditions was kind of an early precursor to the, the phrase developmental disabilities. Um, so, uh, but, but as I say, most states have broadened to a definition of developmental disabilities, and that would open the door to individuals receiving services um, who are now finding it very hard to get them, including people who would be on the autism spectrum. Um, another component of that issue, of course, relates to um, the cost, obviously. Um, the work group had data that showed currently that about 60% of the counties provide using county funds all the services that in individuals with developmental disabilities um, uh, services that are on the on the ID waiver uh, for individuals who are who would be um, classified as developmentally disabled and so if we broaden the waiver definition to include developmental disabilities, there is the potential for some off, to offset costs there. Um, so that's something that needs to be further explored. Um, a sibling issue there, since we're talking about waivers, is um, consolidating them with over, to, uh, those that have overlapping uh, target groups. You know, we have the physical disabilities waiver, the ill and handicapped waiver, the brain injury waiver, um, it was recommended years ago that we look at consolidation. Um, everyone knows Iowa's system is so complex. I'm sure you've all seen the menu of services that are available um, under each of the waivers, and you know it's it's mind-boggling to look at in terms of overall simplification and improving access to services. Um, consolidation of the waivers should be given a hard look. And a component of that also would be developing criteria that includes diagnostic variables as well as functional status um, for determining eligibility. Okay, I'm going to um, move now to core services and um, uh, talk first about that first bullet, which says, consistent with Olmstead principles, services that expand and support community integration should be enhanced. For example, commu <coughs> supported community living, self-direction, transition services, supported employment. Recognizing that such expansion will take time, the current array of residential, day, and vocational services should be continued. Now, um, <coughs> the first sentence is pretty clear. Um, the second one requires um, a little more explanation. Um, in terms of best practice, Olmstead implementation should be, it's not only best practice, it's expected practice. Um, 
we're, we want to move to a system where services are individualized, where per, they're person-centered, they're integrated. The, our work group definitely had consensus on that. Um, but in terms of, um, uh, I, I think it's important that we all point out that the preliminary uh, report wisely pointed out that no one benefits from precipitous change. And um, to take one example um, that was kind of contentious, um, we, we, we talked about center-based employment services, which used to be called uh, center-based employment services are sometimes called sheltered workshops. Um, if that service w were ended immediately, um, then there would be many people in the system who did not have a place to go. And um, because in our state, for complex reasons which are now being addressed, supported employment services are not as sufficiently available as they need to be. Um, so there was strong consensus in our work group that um, that the existing array of residential day and vocational services continue to be available, and that's why they are listed in Appendix A of your report. Um, um, and actually, the word core is used to describe them on page 30 of, of the preliminary report. But the question is, for how long should some of those services be considered core? Some members of the work group would say they should be considered core indefinitely. Others would say that they should be phased down um, after regions have built the capacity to offer the types of services that would be most in keeping with Olmstead principles. And that's something you may want to um, uh, discuss during the question and answer period. Um, <clears throat> So moving on to other um, services that are recommended, um, the IDDD service system should transition to conflict-free case, case management. Um, that concept was already presented today. In our, um, that concept was operationalized in our work group to mean uh, that conflict-free would mean um, that the function would be divorced from the direct provision of services in order to assure that individuals and families would be given adequate choice among uh, the range of available providers. Um, um, should Iowa move to using functional assessment for resource allocation, there, we also need to look at conflict-free um, ass assessments. Um, okay, um, into other uh, systems, best, pr best practice, health and primary care services should be available in local communities. Um, talk about multi-occurring. I mean, people with intellectual and developmental disabilities have primary health care needs. Um, it can be an element of complexity. There are health disparities currently um, relating to people with disabilities. Um, so we need to make sure that people have access to the health and primary care services they need. Um, best practice family support services should be provided to help families keep a member with a disability at home. Um, that's we we haven't talked um, haven't talked yet about the the reality that more and more people with intellectual and developmental disabilities are staying with their families longer. Nationally, that's the case. And. 
um, given the fact that as as individuals age, um, that's uh, that's that's becoming more and more of of an issue. Um, some states have gone to the concept of a support waiver, which um, acknowledges that individuals will be staying with their families longer. Um, uh, not that it's necessarily the, the preferred option, but it could be just a consequence of having insufficient resources in the system to provide a full array of services. That's another thing that we, we, you may want to consider. Um, then the final recommendation on the first page with the expansion of the ID waiver to DD, um, we explore, explore whether services from other waivers may be appropriate to include in a DD waiver. And the example there is assistive technology. Um, um, okay, then um, in terms of services that would need to be added, um, there is a list, the first three go together, crisis prevention and intervention, behavioral intervention and positive behavior support services and mental health outreach. Um, these services have been made available to individuals transitioning through Iowa's Money Follows the Person um, project. And they, they, I can say from our experience, my, uh, my program partners with the uh, Department of Human Services to implement that effort, um, they are absolutely essential to the success of individuals transitioning. Um, um, speech, occupational, and physical therapies needed for habilitation. Uh, what that means is that um, under the Medicaid plan, speech, occupational, and, and physical therapies um, are covered for rehabilitation, in other words, for getting function back, but they're not necessarily provided for habilitation, for developing the capacity in the first place. Um, another, um, the other, other services that we're recommending, housing supports. Um, uh, Director Palmer and, and uh, mentioned earlier that we're not just talking about clinical issues. We're talking about housing, employment, and so forth. Um, um, we need to look at what can we be doing across agencies to make sure we have accessible, affordable housing for people with, um, with disabilities. We've experienced that as a need um, in terms of the implementation of Money Follows the Person. Um, the <clears throat> addressing housing would be working with the Iowa Finance Authority, for example, looking at things like the, um, the HCBS rent subsidy program. Um, telehealth services, that's a whole other dimension. Um, but when we look at the kind of infrastructure that Iowa needs in terms of delivering services, we need to take advantage of the technology that's available to us. And to have um, internet-based point-to-point um, -point contact using Skype or programs like that, um, if we, we can be smart about getting the consultation people need for crises to, to, to people when, when they need them. Um, and that's, that's one of the um, potential uses of telehealth. Peer uh, support for self-advocates. Um, as I said, um, Mia Peterson was one of the members of our, our work group. Um, very um, powerful self-advocate. She 
um, reinforce the importance of peer-to-peer -peer supports, um, just as is the case in for um, peer to peer uh, in the mental health community. And um, the final service that we were looking at was guardianship service with uh, due process protections for individuals, um, augmenting what is available now in that regard. Okay. Um, now, the next two categories, um, um, you may have noticed that the, um, the typeface for our summary is smaller than the other. We, we, we talked about a lot of things. And um, Joe did a great job of, of cramming so much of this into one, in, into, into front and page, the front and back. Um, but when we talk about um, outcome assessment and performance measures and provider qualifications and monitoring, those, and those are also sibling issues. Um, and outcome assessment, that's sort of looking at things, and, and outcome assessment and performance measures is looking at things from a systems perspective, provider qualifications and monitoring more from the, the provider um, perspective, obviously. But a little bit of history, I think, is important in terms of understanding the recommendations that come from our work group. Um, <clears throat> You know, it wasn't that long ago when services were, were primarily provided in large congregate settings. And many, in many ways, um, the, the kinds of, um, uh, um, well, quality assurance or, or an accountability um, tools that are used go back to looking at issues that are important in terms of health and safety in, in large settings, but not so much the contemporary practice. So no surprise that the recommendation is made that we tie measurement to individual and family outcomes. Um, you will find in your report a um, page um, 20 and 21, I think it is, um, the consensus recommendations relating to system, individual, and family um, outcome domains. And that's a, that's a good place to start. Um, there was strong recommendation that um, provider performance data should be aggregated, reported, and made public. There was, that's one area where there was a lot of consensus um, from, from providers. Um, also, um, Mia Peterson spoke about her desire for, uh, to have easy to understand information. Families want to know. They would like to be able to compare the performance of providers and so forth. Um, but all of this can't work unless um, DHS is allocated um, additional staff um, to review and analyze the data. I mean, as I say, we've worked, to, uh, my program's partnered with, with DHS for years. They are, in my opinion, under-resourced. Their staff does a, does a great job with an enormous scope of responsibility. Um, in order to really have the kind of robust accountability that we want, it's going to take an investment, in my opinion, and in the opinion of the work group. Um, and a, a related issue here is um, creating a quality improvement committee on, um, on an ongoing basis. Um, I feel like I've gone on and on, but um, uh, let me, um, and I, I respect your desire to ask questions, 
So in terms of provider qualifications and monitoring, let me just highlight a few of those recommendations. Um, the first one, consider the cost to providers in the development of quality monitoring efforts. Um, this is one where, no, no surprise, providers on the work group were, were very concerned about whatever you don't just add, but think, l examine carefully um, what is the quality monitoring efforts that are underway and again, streamline where we can. Um, no one wants to dodge account accountability. That's not the issue. The issue is how can we do it um, in, the, in the most efficient way. Um, so develop uniform, streamlined, and statewide cost reporting standards and tools. Um, um, make quality monitoring information, including services, quality and location, easily available and understandable to all citizens. I've basically talked about that already. Um, then I'd like to uh, direct your attention to the, the recommendation, develop a partnership with providers in order to improve the quality of services and develop mechanisms for the provision of technical assistance. This was another important theme. Um, just to make sure that we, we go into a mode where um, what we're doing is continuous quality improvement, yes, but not in a got you, um, caught you doing something bad attitude, but more from the perspective of providing technical assistance in a positive way. Um, everybody wants to improve, especially with an eye on producing the kinds of um, individual, family, and system outcomes that we value. Um, um, I think the, I'll talk just briefly about workforce. Um, and that is, it means something different in the, um, in the IDDD world. Um, our discussions regarding workforce focused on direct support professionals, um, direct care workers, um, they're sometimes called. Um, and because basically, again, in terms of the, the changes that have been going on in the IDDD world, we're talking about making sure that we have people who can help people be successful in the community. And to do that, it requires, um, it requires that, that we care about the development of the competencies that direct support professionals have. Um, so the first recommendation relates to making the College of Direct Support available at no charge to all ID and DD providers. Um, and requiring that direct support professionals um, demonstrate a level of competency in core curricula. If we go there, then the door is open to pot potential differential reimbursement to, to reward providers whose staff can meet um, competencies. Um, and, um, uh, and then speaking of, of cost issues, um, this very important rec recommendation regards in, in regard to training is change current rate reimbursement formula to allow providers to bill such cost as a direct expense rather than as an indirect cost. You may know that currently providers are capped at 20% um, of direct costs and it's difficult for a provider to be able to proactively meet the staff development needs of their of their team, um, especially when there is turnover again and again. 
one of the very wise things that you did in passing Senate File 525 is also to ask for what should the responsibility of the state be in providing certain aspects of the infrastructure. And training is one of them. Currently, the College of Direct Support is being piloted through Money Follows the Person resources that we have and also another grant that um, DHS got um, from, uh, from the feds, um, the Real Choices Systems Transformation Grant. Um, we know um, that it works and the recommendation is that it be made um, available statewide. Um, I feel like I should stop. Um, I realize now I didn't do two things when I began. One was acknowledging as I look at Representative Heaton that his vibrant and engaged participation in our work group, um, he was, um, you know, he's a, um, the, 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 the <laughs> well, I won't comment on that, but um, but um, Senator Hatch, we appreciate your participation in the work group as your schedule allowed. And also, I didn't um, introduce my uh, lone comrade. Our group was not shy, um, but there's only one of them there. Um, and Terry Johnson, the CEO of, of Genesis, and he and I um, have agreed, or at least I from my perspective, I'll handle your easy questions and the hard ones go there. So, but thanks. Start out with a question this time. Um, one of the things we're talking about is assessment. We hear the theme coming up from group to group about assessments, but yet needing to have quality folks doing those assessments. So it's just not anybody. So on the, the side of, the, of IDDD, since it's a fairly for the most part, folks are fairly consistent. They're going to be there, and you're going to know that there's disabilities, and it doesn't change a lot. Is that a different level of criteria for a person doing those kinds of assessments than for anybody else, or could we look at streamlining the assessment process to do everything kind of in one? I just wanted your thoughts. Um, I think you need a specialized assessment for intellectual and developmental disabilities. You do. Absolutely. Um, and in fact, I think what you want, if you're going to recommend that we adopt this, the particular tool of the supports intensity scale that's being piloted, one of the things we learned through our pilot is that it is not, it is not realistic to expect uh, people who already have full-time jobs, like case managers, to also administer that assessment, which is, it is time-consuming. Um, but, but uh, by the way, the, the most people who participated in the pilot feel that the results, it's well worth the investment of the time. So implementing the supports intensity scale would, would require coming up with a cadre of assessors um, that would be dedicated, that would be their full-time job. Um, most states that have adopted it, um, in terms of a statewide system um, approach have done that. Um, one of the things that are um, uh, we've changed from uh, waivers available at the county level and moved to a statewide waiver list. One of the problems, if someone decides to move from the state, 
So that I eight with a quarter of the physical year. They're going to wait a long, long time to get back their slot. It's not run over, thrown under the bus, if you want to say that. I'm just asking Rick to address that gap. We can begin to think about a number of strategies uh, when the person, uh, I guess the question is leaving the state for what purpose? I'm assuming leaving the state to be served outside the state and then planning to come back into the state. Uh, <clears throat> having a uh, return plan early on, and if it's clear that that person is going to be coming back in six months, uh, keeping them on the waiver uh, in light of that uh, early return. It, no different in some ways than some individuals who go into uh, institutional care, residential care, and the people that they're serving or being served by should be notifying the waiver if they believe that the person is going to be coming back in a, in a fairly short period of time. Then their slot can be held. It's sometimes when people forget to notify waiver uh, people that the person might be coming back. So that's one way. Uh, <clears throat> so also at the point of going out, if there's a sense that that individual uh, would be returning in a year or within some reasonable period of time uh, than holding that p position on the waiver. I just hope that, that if we can address it to Things happen. You can have a, you can have a person who's living with a set of parents, and they decide to split, and they the other mate. They're out. Um, just, just need to. We just, we just need to fix it so everybody's getting. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, it, uh, good afternoon, Bob. Um, it occurs to me it, it, through the testimony today that uh, a number of the presenters have come to us from the University of Iowa. And uh, I would just, as a, as a person lucky enough to represent Iowa City and the university, um, to have the expertise uh, in Chris Atchison from the, from the College of Public Health opening this morning, Dr. Michael Flom, uh, and now Bob Bacon, um, that our, our University of Iowa has, has really uh, looks outside of Iowa City. And you know, th these are people that have worked their careers, really, uh, to pro provide support to communities all over the state, I, I just take that opportunity to to point that out. I know I have another. Const I have all these constituents here that are really smart uh, and inv and involved, and keeps me on my toes. Jeff Lauer, who we heard from earlier from the Brain Association, 
is uh, do also doing community work all over this state. Um, I do have a question. Um, <laughs> and I, I would highlight this is our University of Iowa. It's not, and it's the support of the people around this table that make it. So, um, Bob, you referenced uh, rent subsidy and the, and the importance of when people do move into the community and, and need support financially. Could you talk a little bit more about that and any other specific ideas you have for us on creating more support through subsidies? Well, um, the rent subsidy has been important in the implementation of the Money Follows the Person program um, because sometimes individuals transitioning um, have to be on a waiting list for a Section 8 voucher. So that's where the HCBS rent subsidy comes in. Um, the latest information I have about where that stands, um, um, we learned from the Iowa Finance Authority that I think about 60% of the money that's allocated for the subsidy has been obligated at this point of the year. Um, last year, I believe they, we ran out. Um, they had to suspend applications for a while. Um, that's that is an issue that um, that should be on on your radar screen. While we're talking money, something I um, you know, in terms of individuals transitioning from um, ICFMR programs, which as we know are higher cost um, on average. Um, you saw probably from HSRI that twelve point eight. Um, let's see, how does it go? Um, in terms of the total amount of dollars in the system from 2009, $629 million, 48% um, of that goes to 12, basically 12% 12 of the IDDD population. So in terms of trying to maximize the resources that we have in the system, it does make sense to, um, but of course for Olmstead reasons, but also for cost effectiveness reasons. I mean, it's always great when when the planets align. In other words, when we've got civil rights, you know, pointing in the direction of cost effectiveness. But um, but a program like rent subsidy can can assist with that. Madam Chair, uh, when you do a shout-out for individuals, you sometimes leave people out. And uh, he hasn't presented here today, but Stacy Seifert is also here with us today from the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics, somebody that's been involved in our health care reform efforts pretty, pretty dramatically. Thank you, Madam Chair. Any other questions? Representative Hedens? Here, I don't know that I know. I have more. Well, I guess I. Regards to. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Uh, <laughs> um, it's one of the coolest things um, that has happened in in the IDDD world. Um, we, um, and, and again, it and, and by the way, in, in terms of um, uh, facilitating the changes that you want to see in the system, do recognize that it, some, that there is a lot going on right now, and DHS has been working really, really hard in so many areas. So many of the state agencies, of course, have as well. And 
and leveraging federal resources that have financed change. Grants and contracts, but of course, I mean, Joe, those gracious words about the university, um, we, we write them, we, we help DHS um, get them, but they are not ends in themselves. They're, they're ways of financing change. And in this case, one of the things we really did want to, um, to address was the, the sad lack of easily accessible competency-based training for direct support people. Um, and um, I'm pleased to tell you now that um, as a result of the, the support, first from that Real Choices Systems Change Grant, but now from Money Follows the Person, there are about 45 providers that are using College of Direct Support, and over 1,500 people are registered and getting trained. And it was made available to the programs without cost, and hence, it's appropriate for the state, in my opinion, to invest in the infrastructure that makes that happen. It's just so much simpler. Um, um, if you're interested in the College of Direct Support, um, we'd be happy to, you could try it on for, take it out for a test drive. Um, any, it, it's, it's incredibly, it's competency-based training. Um, it, um, if even for, for people who may not be able to necessarily read very well in some cases, perhaps um, the, the the College of Direct Support it's computer based and it, the lessons will, the narrator will will speak. There are video demonstrations of skills, and of course, when we're talking about direct care training, you, you, a person can't learn everything they need to learn just by a computer, you have to be able to determine that what has been learned can also be um, can also be applied on the job. And there's a dimension of the College of Direct Support administrative uh, system that allows for that kind of monitoring. Thank you very much. I believe that concludes our time with this particular um, presentation. We will now take a short break, and we will be back at 10 after 3, because I know it will take you longer than that. So I'll see you at 10 after 3.
Talk you about the microphone yes. system. Yeah. Um, we've been having trouble.
was at the Medicaid director's meeting. project for California under their 1115, looking at the expansion population and their whole behavioral health system, which is pretty much non-existent in Medicaid, surprisingly. Uh, they have a, a very weird system, but um, they're really looking a lot at behavioral health integration, and John has been, John has been pushing that from the SAMHSA CMS side to get California to really focus on that. Because they have a, a huge bifurcation between they have a specialty mental health plan, which is run by counties, and then they have the, um, behavioral, uh, they have physical health plans, some of which are run by counties, some of which are run by, you know, vendor big, big companies, Kaiser, et cetera. And there's, there's almost no behavioral health benefit in those physical, not even a benchmark like plan. So this like this gigantic bifurcation with a gray area people in between. When the expansion population comes in, a lot of those folks are going to be gray area people. So it's an interesting question how you do that on the physical level. Well, I heard some interesting things at that meeting that people are doing with managed care. Like uh, Arizona was talking about how they were going to take their, uh, their Reba yeah. card out, and they were contemplating uh, doing those in SNP plans, ah. doing a dual, like doing, doing a make court requirement to be a SNP plan, because so many of them are dual, and bringing in the Medicare component also. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've, we've actually talked to them some about that, um, and it sounds like a really interesting idea, although it also sounds like they're sort of looking at compartmentalizing it off to the side, which might create some integration problems. But. Well, it's bringing that view and behavioral together. Yeah. But, uh, you it know, could, who are could. these people you know about? Yeah, well, you know, Maricopa County, the, the, the um, REBA for Maricopa County is... One of the biggest, one of the biggest municipal contracts in the country. Yeah, I was, I can imagine. And I think Magellan has it. Yeah. Uh, but some of the other Rebus are little county-operated organizations that are not so sophisticated. Well, I spent um, seven years in Arizona. I worked for the Arizona used to have a pretty creative Medicaid Pretty, pretty creative. Um, the way they did the carve-out for the Rebus, the benefit design, the way the capitation was structured. All that stuff was really pretty creative. And things have changed over the last couple of years. Well, and the guy who runs the Medicaid program now, Tom we were on the budget side before. He was the director of the governor's budget office, and I was the deputy legislative budget office. So it's funny to Yeah. Our marketplace is interesting and others interested in kind of um, re-energizing our 
We're going to reconvene early. Back at the tables in two minutes. We will start in one minute. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I have an announcement besides that we're starting, but the announcement is, uh, is in regard to our next meeting date. Uh, we will be meeting December 24th. Oh, no. It's the date I'm cooking dinner. Okay. We will be meeting December 19th. 19th. And I assume it will be here, and it will be, um, we'll have the start time um, determined by LSA and the department. Thank you for everybody for allowing us to change that date. It barely meets my schedule of, so I appreciate ten, 10 o'clock, to be 10. And, and the purpose of that will really be the uh, committee uh, making recommendations for legislative drafting. And this might as well be a good time um, to, to also acknowledge that um, the staffs of the four caucuses and legislative service agency will be getting together within a week uh, to, to start looking at those that they believe agree on, okay, as a an initial kind of list that though that list will then be kind of informally discussed with the members and we'll have it to uh, put some more items on that list and then that will be our starting point on, um, on uh, for discussion on December 19th All right, now we have the children's uh, work group. We have Mark Pelton from Mercy Hospital, Mercy Medical Center in North, uh, North Iowa. I'm assuming that's in Mason City? Yes. Yes. And uh, Jennifer Vermeer, our... Okay. Please Is this on? Is the microphone on? Yes. Yes. Well, uh, just to explain a little bit, tell you a little bit about myself, because it tells how I came to believe in the work of this work group. I've been involved in the administration of mental health services for 28 years, and I've worked in some sort of mental health 
I've worked in some sort of mental health program since 1974. And I've seen lots of dramatic changes in that the way that psychiatric services are delivered, hugely significant improvements in our outcomes, and a remarkable shift from stigmatizing views of mental illness to realization that these are common health problems and really almost a normal part of the human experience. Uh, that got me to the point of being really excited about my opportunity to serve with Jennifer on the Children's Disability Work Group and as part of the overall mental health and disability services system redesign process. Uh, our work group's two-year charter directed us to identify programs and services that would enable us to bring children and youth home from out-of-state placements. We also recognize that we need to create systems and to facilitate process changes so that no further children or youth need to leave the state to receive the services uh, that they need to care for them. Uh, our group was a very able one. There was lots of brain power in that room. Um, I'm a licensed psychologist, so I'm able to say that. Um, I, um, you know, the input of the parent representatives and from the public was invaluable. I just want to quickly run through our membership, and if, uh, I think a few people are here today, so raise your hand. Marilyn Altoff from Dubuque, Nicole Beeman from Des Moines, Paula Connolly from Johnston, Julie Curry from Des Moines, Jim Ernst from Cedar Rapids, Jerry Foxhoven from Des Moines, Jason Hagelin from Ames, Jan Heikes from Decora, Janice Lane from Des Moines, Marilyn Lance also from Des Moines, uh, Samantha Murphy, I know, is here. She's from Des Moines. Wendy Rickman, also from the Des Moines, from Des Moines and from the Iowa Department of Human Services. Rhonda Schaus, who is here from Cedar Rapids. Dr. Jason Smith from Cherokee. Uh, he's the superintendent of the Mental Health Institute there. David Stout from Des Moines and Dr. Deborah Waldron from Iowa City. Uh, we also appreciated the um, organizing strengths of Cappy Maddenwald, who was our consultant from the Technical Assistance Collaborative. You know, when I said the people were smart, they were, but that also makes them very opinionated. And um, Cappy managed to keep us going in the same direction. You have a two-page summary of our work um, in front of you, and our complete report is on pages 67 to 86 of the report. Um, in the process of our work, we identified numerous gaps in the current children's system. And those are described pretty clearly in the work group report summary that's in front of you and with further detail in the broad report. Um, we're obviously not able to address all of the complex issues in our six sessions together, but we're relieved as a group that, and I was just talking to some of my fellow members, that Senate File 525 allows us, the Children's Work Group, extended time to examine the gaps and to present a full set of recommendations to you. And I think we intend to do so by about this time next year, maybe toward the end of next, uh, next year. Um, Appendix C of the redesign report identifies in detail the full range of issues we need, we need to still address. So, in order to address, uh, achieve our initial goal, bringing back out of state and preventing further placements, we have some initial recommendations. You know, first of all, all of us believe that there's a life in the community for everyone. And I think that's kind of an Olmstead report concept. Olmstead uh, plan concept, and uh, we believe that there are certain core services that need to be ruled out to ascertain that we create what we called welcoming communities, and that we called also able, able, adequately supported families in which these children and youth can continue to grow and develop. And I'm going to delineate those in a minute. 
A second um, recommendation is to develop a health home model in which to deliver care. And we just gave out this handout to you. Have that? And um, really, I should say a specialized health home model in which to deliver care because we're talking about the most chronically ill and severely ill of children. And this handout gives a basic explanation of how a health home model operates. Um, it shows how the health home would serve these kind of these most needy of children um, and youth. And the handout also recognizes that there are many other children and youth who can be helped by more traditional and often existing programs. Um, states already have the option to use their Medicaid programs to fund health homes and to best manage those beneficiaries with chronic conditions, including mental health conditions. Uh, and we're talking about children with chronic conditions here. The um, Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services is also temporarily waiving Medicaid comparability requirements, and so that allows programs that can offer flexibility in scope, duration, and target population, and allows for incremental development of the health home concept. Um, we can use the health home to deliver key components of a system of care. And integral to what we want we're suggesting we do to bring these kids back and keep other kids out of out-of-state placements uh, is the systems of care concept and some of the core services that I'll, I will get to eventually here. Um, so page two of our handout, the shorter handout that you have in front of you, we have a, a definition of a systems of care. And if you notice, it's kind of a long run-on sentence that any English teacher would cringe at. Uh, but that's kind of intentional, that um, when we first designed the handout, it had bullet points. But you know what? You can take, it's easier to touch bullet points off of a handout, uh, whereas a one sentence, it's harder to cut it apart. And the, the systems of care definition that we developed was meant to emphasize the whole health and cross-systems issues that need to be addressed by all child-serving systems. And that definition will hopefully push all of us responsible for, for, for providing care to children to eliminate silos of thinking and practice, because those definitely exist, to recognize our interdependence, and to coordinate across funding streams, and also to commit to meaningful partnerships. Now, there are systems of care already existent uh, and functioning effectively in Iowa. Um, the cir community circle of care in northeast Iowa and the central systems of care in De here in Des Moines uh, which is out of Orchard Place, have demonstrated that we deliver service really does result in desired outcomes. And we did study, uh, spend a good deal of time in our work groups studying the existing systems of care in Iowa and similar programs in other states. Um, you know, what we saw was that non-traditional, non-healthcare providers that nothing to do with healthcare can, can be a significant component of a systems of care and really render this community a place that can take care of children who have serious emotional and behavioral disturbances. So let me get back to the core services I mentioned earlier. Um, they're key to successfully transitioning um, children and youth now out of state back to Iowa and also especially in the prevention of further out of state placements. Well, one of the things we want to talk about is intensive care coordination not case management. Care coordination is different. I was driving down here, I was trying to think of how to explain the difference. And case management kind of directs people to do what we, we as the 
experts believe they should do. Case management really is, or care coordination really is a guide to help people achieve what they want to achieve. Um, so care coordinators take a lead role with the youths and their families themselves, but are also key in the development, ongoing development of uh, systems of care because as they work with families and children, they see the gaps and they work to fill those gaps. Um, we would suggest that care coordination, intensive care coordination, fall under the auspices of the specialized health homes. Because if you have this intensive care coordination in the health home, you can link the outcomes, which might be reduced emotional distress, reduced acting out behavior, better physical health, with the kind of outcomes that really have not been well addressed so far by the current treatment system. And those less traditional but very important outcomes include succeeding at school, preparing for employment, and I think one of the most important was having meaningful social connectedness, um, having friends, having support. That ties into the next very important recommendation uh, that we develop, fund, nurture a system of family peer support. Um, parents of children with these severe behavioral and emotional problems um, often have no one to turn to for parenting support. Um, family peer specialists, or family partners you might call them, are individuals who have themselves experienced the stress of parenting a child with serious dis disabilities of some, of some sort. And these individuals, the family uh, peer support folks, can function as allies, advocates, and also as guides. Um, the idea is that their availability keeps families intact and children at home. Uh, we would recommend, again, that these, this core service also fall under the auspices of the specialized health home. I think you've probably heard from other work groups, I know that they mentioned it in their reports, that Iowa lacks adequately available and reasonably accessible crisis services. So we've recommended in our longer report uh, an array of programming in this regard that it can, can occur in the community and that can prevent any out-of-home placement or at least long-term out-of-home placements. You know, realistically, we believe that short-term crisis stabilization might involve a stay away from home. Um, and it doesn't mean, though, that it needs to be an admission to the hospital or a placement in a PEMIC, although that's a possibility. It could be uh, a respite care, a placement in a temporarily in foster care or something like that. Um, all of our interventions, including the crisis management, um, we, we wanted to emphasize in our report that they should be focused on the individual child and their family. Um, in a systems of care environment, the programs adapt to the needs of the person and not vice versa. Nowadays, we kind of say, here's our program, you follow the rules, you do what we tell you to do, and then we'll say you're okay. We don't give people the opportunity to say um, what they believe is okay. Um, you've probably heard from other work groups that, that it's important also to enhance intensive community-based uh, treatment. And actually, this process is already in place. Um, the uh, behavioral health, what are now called behavioral health intervention services, and there were previously remedial services, on which the Department of Human Services funds spends a lot of money. Uh, have transitioned to Magellan, right? And that was in in July. In July. Uh, and so Magellan now is working to improve those services. Um, I see Joan Disher here, and 
But I wanted to thank her. She attended most of our meetings. She was from Magellan. She she attended most of our meetings. Um, another recommendation at this point in our journey uh, is to become more flexible in our use of PMIX, psychiatric medical institutions for children. This level of care is intensive, but it still may be necessary for children with, still it will be necessary for children with serious emotional and behavior disturbances. Uh, at this time, the admission process is relatively cumbersome and the stays are generally long-term. Um, at this time, the, the kids who are out of state are there mostly because they couldn't be cared for in our current system. So we need to look at different ways of utilizing those services or making those services responsive to the needs of that individual child. Um, but children who are in out-of-home placement now may need those services when they come back. Children who are currently on the way to out-of-home place, out-of-state placements and that we want to avoid may need, still need those, will still need those services. Um, so with all this in mind, um, the Children's Work Group recommends a short-term strategy to bring children home from out-of-state. We suggested that the Department of well, the Iowa Plan actually issue one or more requests for proposals to serve children and youth currently out of state or those that are at risk of those out of state placements. Uh, we kind of estimate that there's, a, well, we know that there's about 150 kids out of state, and we estimated in our group that there's probably about 450 who are at risk, significant risk of being in those placements. Um, these proposals, we have to said, should have a community first emphasis. They need to address home health models. They need to have care coordination involved. They need to increase crisis services. Uh, they need to include peer, family peer support. They need to address further intensive in-home services that really meet the needs of these families and children. And they need to have other consider other innovative community-based strategies. Um, the RFP will consider different reimbursement models, uh, perhaps outcome-based. Uh, we would like to see them address therapeutic foster care, something that hasn't been available in Iowa for some time, uh, and some outcome measures that I'm going to finish with in just a moment. Um, the RFP needs to realize that both rural and urban areas of the state must be addressed because right now uh, you can be in uh, Des Moines and you can be in even in Mason City or Waterloo and get some pretty good services. But if you live 75 miles to the west of Mason City, you're kind of in a service desert in, in reality. Um, I believe the RFP will be addressed after this uh, start of state fiscal year 2013. And that about that will coincide or take place after the transition of the PMIX to the Iowa plan. Um, and the recommended impl implementation date for the RFPs will be in spring 2013, or the, the work that the RFPs will do. So we do need to have some outcome measures. And we, need, we think that we need to develop a central data collection system that can be shared uh, and would eventually help us to recognize and further improve upon best practices. Right now, I mean, we could be doing something at Mercy Medical Center in North Iowa that's wonderful, uh, and somebody else could be doing something at, even at our own sister facility in Sioux City. We don't know very well. We talk in groups. So you can imagine the disconnect between agencies that 
don't work together except on sharing cases, you know, sending cases up and back to each other. Um, we also want to find, um, show that the outcome or performance measures, whatever we develop, were meaningful that, to the children, youth, and families, uh, that they're not our outcome measures, but that they're their outcome measures. And those are the people who are our customers, and we want these services to be directed by them and driven by their needs, and the outcome measures to be driven by them. Um, that's all I have. I, thanks for the opportunity. Um, we're looking forward to, in our group, to continuing our work together and uh, hope to be back with more ideas for improvement next year. Questions? Would you take a minute and walk us through what yes. your thoughts are here on Actually, your page? And then is it okay with you if we post this on the website yes, with it, all of the other it pieces? Been, that was a miscommunication on my Great. Thank you. Yes, just make sure you're directly speaking into the microphone so that our friends across the state can hear you. Okay, is that close enough? Um, the Iowa Medicaid program is developing a health home model generally that would be more of what you would traditionally think of for a health home, you know, primary care based, uh, physician practice based, people with chronic conditions like diabetes and congestive heart failure, things like that, um, under the new option that's available um, through the Affordable Care Act. Uh, section 2703 of the law. Under that option, states can receive 90% federal match for the health home services for eight quarters after you start. So that's one of the real advantages here is the enhanced federal financing that can really help you um, get your program up and running. So we have been working for um, probably a year on that model um, for primary care services. And when the Children's Disability Work Group started working, um, that work and all the discussion about systems of care kind of brought to mind that there are a lot of similarities between the philosophies behind a health home model, which is all about whole person, patient-centeredness, um, integration of physical and mental health care, um, providing a wraparound of services to the person. There's just a lot of similarities between those two models. And so it kind of got us thinking about how the health home model could maybe be deployed to um, provide what the work group considered to be a very significant gap in the current children's mental health system, and that is the patient navigation, care coordination, and peer support. For these children who are cross-system, they have very significant um, behavioral health needs, uh, social needs, um, they really need that dedicated care coordination service. It, we're thinking it would be a pretty intensive service with uh, pretty low uh, caseloads and so forth, and that service is currently not uh, really present in our children's mental health system. And so that's what this health home model is really trying to get across. So um, this, you shouldn't take this as a literal representation of how this would work. It's sport, sort of meant to be conceptual, kind of showing the primary care health home being sort of the baseline model that would have the most sort of members in it that would cross a broad spectrum of um, chronic conditions. So in level, you know, primary care health home, you might have children who have one mental health diagnosis, they're on some medication, they're getting outpatient treatment, they maybe have one other chronic condition such as asthma. That population can be managed pretty well in your standard primary care type of setting. But then when you get into this, the children that have really much more serious emotional disturbances um, that really reach that definition of SED, that's when we started thinking about um, you really need a specialized kind of 
skill set to really do a good job of providing care coordination for those children. Because you're talking about a lot of times involvement with child welfare systems, with juvenile justice, um, there may be physical health along with the behavioral health. So it's a really complex system that that care coordinator is trying to deal with. So that's what we're kind of trying to show is that once you get into the you know real definitions of SED, that you need a more specialized um, entity to be that health home, and that they, even within that you may have um, you may have one to two levels. Uh, the way we're structuring the health home generally is kind of this idea of a tiered payment approach where we're in the primary care health home, we're looking at four tiers of payment based on the level of acuity of the individual. And so we were kind of tra trying to translate that concept into this idea of a specialized health home. So it's sort of like if you have your, you know, your general health home, this would be a kind of specialized version of that targeted to a specialized group of individuals. And we think it also um, may be a good model for adults also because we're working on um, health homes for um, adults with serious mental illness too. So I don't know if that, hopefully that, that helps explain a little bit kind of where it, we're trying to It does. To go I have it. a question. Um, what you mentioned earlier about intensive care management, would those care coordination, would that be part of that health home? Yes. And the, the employees would be a member of that organization, facility, whatever, and then... In the systems of care uh, that exist, and, you know, I mentioned Northeast Iowa and here in Des Moines, the care coordinators now, they're funded by the systems of care organization itself. Um, but they have few, I mean, after what, 20, I think, I believe, was 15 to 20 cases, families that they take care of. That's very minimal compared to most other services. And that enables them to work with all the other providers who would be part of this uh, specialized health home. And then are you considering the education component as something that then would blend in this? What do you do with education? For example, um, Orchard Place with their school on site. Is the care coordination, whatever, there, is that person that would be your intense care coordinator able to coordinate with the school? And then, then yes. if they go back into the community also? Yes, that's the idea. So the health home service, if you were to look at the service definition of what is the health home, the health home would include the care coordination, the peer support, um, the facilitation of the team of individuals that are all involved, which would include education. So if you think about all the different entities that were in, are involved with that child, the health home is really built on a team concept. So you have a lead care coordinator, but it really is a team that is all working together. And in fact, um, it's conceptualized that the family would be a member of the team. The parent or the child would be part of the team in helping to, to drive the, um, the service delivery. But education would be a really important part of that. The work group spent a lot of time actually talking about education and I, and with some frustration actually because that has been uh, an issue um i think rhonda where i think you brought up uh the difficulties you know encountered especially in very small school systems um you know you got a school system of 400 students they struggle to meet the needs of students with serious emotional disturbances or other disabilities uh, and so the care coordinators really need to work a lot with those programs to help them again to adapt to the needs of their customer that student and family 
One more question. Your group is also a two-year group. Yes. And I've been encouraged to be very specific in the charge for the second year of the two-year group. So do you have ideas, and where did you reflect those in your report on things that you'd want to continue working on in year two specifically that you want us to consider, or is that something that you're open, or where are you on your one- to two-year project? Um, we finished up with the you know proposal, the two-page uh, the, the report that we sent you. Uh, we didn't really map out a plan for a year or two, although I think that'll fall into place pretty quickly. First of all, there will be a lot of energy spent. What will it be like getting kids back from out of state? Um, because that's not going to be an easy transition for folks, uh, for the families, for the children and youth themselves, uh, for the communities, because we're not really truthfully ready for them. Um, so I think we'll learn a lot from bringing kids back and devising a system for where they're most likely to be successful first. Uh, and we hope the request for proposals address that. Um, so it, that's kind of what I'm thinking, but we did the one question for, for Jennifer about that, the providers themselves are saying they're having a difficult time really getting a picture of what those children look like in order to determine if they have the service capacity in this state to fill those beds or to create beds or to whatever. And is there some plan on the horizon if you guys are going to delve in that year two that we can figure out how to, I mean, we understand it has to be redacted and it can't be specific to a person, but at the same time, is there a way to get more specific data so that an organization can say, yeah, we might be able to open a 12-bed to do blank? That seems to be a big question among providers. I think that's absolutely um, true, and what we're trying to do, and, you know, we're calling this a request for proposals, but we're trying to think of maybe a a little bit, bit different variation on what that normally would look like so that you you would have this opportunity to sit down with some key partners and really look at the profiles of kids and kind of map out what kinds of things are needed. And I really think that the process needs to have flexibility in it because I think we're going to need to try some things and some things aren't going to work and try something else. Um, but uh, so absolutely that's true and we definitely intend to build something like that into it. Um, as we move forward, we have, and then uh, one thing to add about the second year, uh, we did spend, um, the work group spent a lot of time talking about children's mental health issues, and because I think it was viewed that that was the system that had the most gaps, but we did not really get a chance to spend a lot of time on children with intellectual disabilities and some of the other disability groups, so I know that's a, that's a big priority for the group in the second year is to be sure that we get to some of those issues. Just to add to the, you know, we need to look at, to talk to the Four Oaks and the Orchard Places and the Iowa Health Systems and so on and say, and the schools, and say, what do you need to manage these kids? Because I know right now they get out of, they wind up out of state because everybody says we can't, under our current system funding or program and programmatic system, we can't handle them. and. Um, my question uh, has to do with uh, the primary health home at the primary level. And when you say the provider types are going to be physicians or nurse practitioners or community mental health center. So I'm looking at my local doctor's clinic and I say, okay, how are we going to handle this on a local level in my physician's clinic? 
uh, reminding them that 12 minutes is what you get because that's all the provider pays for, so it's move on, move on. I mean, how are we going to develop time and expertise to spend time providing mental health services when in a clinic the time just doesn't exist? The, um, a partial answer might be the payment methodology behind the health home model is a per member per month payment, so it's not tied to the specific fee-for-service reimbursement. I think in most health homes, the care coordination will be performed by nurses or social workers, would be generally the individuals who would be providing the care coordination services. In terms of the... Um, the limitations of the current fee-for-service model, I think that's something we have to continue working through. But um, the idea behind the health home is to try to, you know, have a more um, regular payment that can pay for things that the normal fee-for-service reimbursement system would not pay for. Any idea how much money would be assigned to each case? Um, I don't have that for you basis? today, but we have been working with our actuaries to figure out what the approach, what uh, it might look like for a range of payments. You know, today in our primary care case manager program, we only pay $2 per member per month to be the primary care case manager. And we know that's definitely not, not going to do it. So I think it's going to be a, a much more substantial payment because um, the payment is going to be tied just to individuals with to just the individuals with chronic conditions. Um, but it's going to it's a, a lot higher than that. The reason I bring it up is I, I'm, I, I'm going I'm in my doctor's office last week and we because he's checking my pulse and everything, we're talking about mental health in, in, in a primary care setting. I said, are, are you interested? And he says, there's no money in it. We're not interested. I, I just wanted to, you know, that's the attitude that's going on out there with our primary care providers. And if you want to do something like this, what are you going to do to make it worth their while? Madam Chair, um, my question's, I guess, in a little bit broader sense, just looking at the just within the apologize, my mic keeps going out. Um, I know the have if they would come out of, let's say, a PMIC, for example, placed in, if they're currently on, like the CMH waiver, you go into a placement for so long, you lose your slot coming back out. Um, and just, I don't know if your group had any discussions on that, that is particular. What we, we talked about making the PMIX more accessible, that an in and out kind of situation might be realistic to help manage somebody to stay at home or stay in the state. And we need to develop that capacity in the, in the PMIX system. Um, we also talked about the long-term concern if know somebody's been in a PMIC for a year and they're not really a Medicaid eligible after that they're discharged for a year what happens so. but we also um, within the department work we would um, contemplate changes in the CMH waiver potentially to help support all of this so that that's on the table as well is um, potentially making changes to how those slots get allocated you know going to prioritize basis or something like that so so that admission, the admission requirements for the CMH waiver is definitely on the table as part of this whole, um, this whole thing. You also mentioned education, and I know with having uh, PMIC in my area, I have uh, Beloit, my 
community. I know one of the conversations school district but the surrounding ones as well is often may not be on an IEP where they get some additional the service not have the resources there additional needs and I just don't know if that's been part of your conversations yet at all if not I would just encourage that to be there because that is just something that we've talked about with the PMIC and with the school system is what type of formula could we do to help those kids that are not on an IEP but the school maybe need an associate it has been part of our discussions without being anything tangible but it definitely is something that we need to recognize not only students who are in PMIX and might be going to a public school but students who are home and um, going to to a local public school especially smaller ones that, that really don't have the resources to manage what do they do Thank you. Um, I have two questions. One is, am I right in understanding that the juvenile mental health system, you know, as it is now and as it will be in the future, that works outside of the regional structure that we're setting up, correct? Well, the work group, I don't, I don't think that question has been directly answered. I think there's been some conversation about there's potential that the regional could also be involved in children or maybe not. I don't think the question has been answered, but I don't know, Chuck, if you want to. The regional structure and thinking about your own evolution on the development of uh, the work groups, the children's work group was one of the last ones that you came to to put in place because your focus was really on what the structure and funding of what was going on in the counties. The counties were not putting money into children's mental health. So that would have been a uh, kind of an afterthought. Now, as you think about a uh, truly integrated system, and you think about transitions uh, from children to adults, it, in my mind, only makes sense that ultimately this is integrated into uh, an overall regional structure as well. I think if not, then you just created another silo and another disconnect. Uh, so, <clears throat> so while this was not specifically discussed by this group or even in the larger group, I think as we go forward, the, the logic of that, if the region's really gonna work and, so, and serve the whole person and so families, that uh, that makes a whole lot of sense that this is operated through that system as well. Okay, and, and that makes sense to me. I'm just wondering, you've got the state money paying for one set of services in a region and then the region slash county money paying for another. I, I foresee some problems with getting them all to work together happily, but I do think that makes sense. My other question is, as far as juvenile let, mental health... Let me health, just speak oh, to sure. that for a second. Uh, in the same way as working to integrate county money with state money, the importance of integrating Title 19 money with non-Title 19 money is going to be uh, the important factor. So, <clears throat> so you really are talking about ultimately a planning integration and kind of in some ways virtual integration of several funding streams to accomplish 
a uh, single end. Um, also, as far as juvenile mental health commitments are concerned, we see kids entering the mental health system through mental health commitments. Off the top of your head, you know, would this proposed structure change anything about the way that happens? I think that the whole record, the, the system that we're recommending can change how that happens because mental health commitments often happen because of lack of crisis intervention services uh, and, and a lack overall. So people don't know what to do and they wind up in the judicial end of things, the law enforcement end of things, and wind up in the commitment process, which is another cumbersome way to get services that should be readily accessible. So if the crisis intervention services are available, people hopefully would not wind up at the courthouse, at the emergency room, in the hospital, or that that flow into the hospital setting would be less traumatic. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, I'm trying to get a sense. Uh, most of my time's been spent in the adult systems. A uh, little bit in. Uh, well, <laughs> and I'm trying to get a sense of the relative size of the of the children's system. The you know how many how many people we're talking about resources, sophistication of the providers and the network. I mean, the first three bullets on gaps, I mean, there, there's no clear points of accountability, there's no uh, logical pathways to treatment, systems are disconnected, I mean, it, it sounds like chaos. But give, give us a sense, I mean, are, have all the resources been going to adults and not enough to kids? I mean, what, talk a little bit about, give us a overview of... I think with kids, what makes it really complex is you have more systems involved than you do with adults. So if you think of kids in the school system, if they're having problems in school, then that's one, that's one system that has IEPs and has a whole way that it does things. Um, there's the health care system, the acute care physical health care system that they may be accessing services through. And then the behavioral health system. And there really is kind of a bifurcation between the behavioral health system and the physical health system. So those people might not be talking to each other. And you have that on the adult side as well. Um, then you may have juvenile justice involvement. And then um, for many of these kids at the very high end, um, they may also be having uh, issues with their family structure. So you may be involved in the child welfare system, which has its own whole set of things. So I think um, one thing about the kid system, it just is more complicated because kids have families and you know they are in these other systems that makes it more complicated. Um, from a financing standpoint, um, in Medicaid, we spend about $150 million on mental health services for children, and that wouldn't include services through the child welfare system, which is another, you know, that's in the tens of millions, and wouldn't include services through juvenile justice or um, through... Um, or through the schools. So you are talking about a very sizable set of systems with a lot of silos and a lot of um, barriers to working across. And so that is just what makes it so challenging. And so when it talks about there being no pathway, um, I think what happens a lot of times is you have a child who's acting out, having problems, 
maybe they're having problems in school, maybe they've been to the primary care doctor, maybe they've prescribed a few things, things aren't getting better, the behaviors are getting worse, and the parents just don't know where to go with that. I mean, there isn't sort of a, a place where people can tell you to go to help you figure out really what's going on. I mean, is it mental health? Is it, you know, what really is happening? And um, so I think that's really one of the things that was talked about. So a lot of things happen by default. What can you find on your own versus figuring out what the real problem is and then having a solution to that problem? Um, so th those were the kind of things, I, at least that I heard a lot from the parents, is that need for navigation, knowing where to go, and then getting the kind of help that you really need, not just what you're able to figure out on your own by calling all over the place. And I think when you call all over the place, you get very different answers from people based on their perspective in the system and what they have to offer. And then from the provider standpoint, you also have a lot of duplication of services that happen here. And so some of the complaints you'll hear from a family is they may be accountable to three and four different organizations, one from each of those different silos, asking them to do different goals and to do different things while they're trying to have a job, while they're trying to go to school. And so there's some, there is some efficiencies to be found in this particular system because it is so um, just disjointed that we're not working as a whole. And that's why I'm very excited about the idea of the integrated care coordination concept with the health home because then you'll finally have one person to work with the family instead of four people to work with the family and hopefully get further along in that. So I think there's some a lot of efficiencies and you'll just see just that number right there, the $150 million. It's a good place to start. And there are a lot of children getting services uh, at the level they need, so it's not that that's not happening at all. And you know, Representative Heaton, you talked about the integration of mental health services into primary care, and that is happening in some places. And when we start paying on a per member per month basis, there may be more money for the primary care physician or the specialty physician as well to say, hmm, referring to the clinical social worker is probably going to be less costly and more appropriate than having this child have, you know, 10 medical tests. Um, and there are places, including, at, you know, in the large health systems in Iowa that where primary care and mental health services are integrated right into the same offices. And it is in a city, but it can happen. Well, I shouldn't say that. In North Iowa, there are Forest City, Lake Mills, towns of three, 4,000 people that happens there. Thank you for your, your presentation. It looks as though the next presentation is going to be about RCFs. And shortly after the, the RCF presentation, for those in the audience, is a much shorter presentation. It's just going to catch us up on some, we've been getting emails and things that we need to get some direction on. And then public comment will be shortly followed. And we're actually a little bit ahead of time. So public comment should be early. Okay, one more time for the date of the next meeting. December the 19th, here at 10 a.m. It's a Monday. Monday, Monday, Monday.
For those of us at the table, there is a handout in your packet about RCS, the privatized and county care facility piece, along with a map that um, we're going to be discussing here shortly. And I'll invite you to begin. I'm Diane Breck. I'm the executive director for Penn Center Incorporated. Um, we're located in Delaware County. And we're just going to talk to you a little. First of all, we thank you for inviting us to talk to you today because we certainly have been trying to provide educational opportunities in a variety of settings, and this gives us a chance to talk about the services that we provide. And we're just going to explain a little bit about what RCFs aren't and what they are. And uh, in the past, RCFs were county homes, mostly county homes. I think there were probably 99 across the state. And they primarily provided services to indigent elderly persons or people with intellectual disabilities. And today, RCFs that we are, are, the way we're made up today is that we primarily provide services to persons with chronic mental illness, serious mental illness across the state. Uh, RCFs currently serve approximately 1,419 people, and of those individuals that we serve, about 622 of them are court-ordered to placement under the involuntary mental health commitment process. There was an RCF task force that went on in 2010, and at that time, they did a survey of RCFs across the state. Not all of the RCFs reported, but the ones who did report, they were serving 1,126 individuals with serious mental illness in the RCFs across Iowa, and RCFs and RCF PMIs, persons with a mental illness. Today's RCS provide an integral service to, in the continuum of care for persons with severe and persistent chronic mental illness. We're not just warehousing people. What we do is we focus on shorter stays with an emphasis on transition to the community when the individual is ready to move into the community and or ready to live in a less restrictive environment. Um, we are treatment-oriented. We are The approaches that we use, we focus on reducing the length of stay so that we can transition people back into the community if that's what they desire. We're trying to educate them and help them manage their mental illnesses so that it reduces the recidivism both to the acute care setting or back to the RCF level of care. We provide a variety of opportunities for success in the community. We help them develop skills in the area of um, illness and medication education. We do medication management, including helping them learn what their medications are, how to use them, and when to seek um, psychiatry or their, see their doctor about the problems that they're having with their medicines. We talk to them about crisis and teach them crisis intervention skills. We help them develop natural supports so that when they do leave that 24-hour structured setting that they have other people that they have developed those supports with so that it helps them to be more successful in the community. And we also provide a tremendous amount of inclusion in the community through community integration, either leisure, recreation, employment, um, just a wide variety of things. We provide a wide range of, of consulting services in a lot of the RCFs, things like, for, for example, a lot, some of the facilities are lucky enough to have a psychiatrist who comes right out to the facility and provides mental health services. Um, some aren't as lucky as Penn Center is. We happen to have a psychiatrist who's there twice a month and on call for us 24-7. We also, people have access to nurse practitioners with psychiatric certification. We provide individual on-site counseling. 
We provide occupational therapy and physical therapy if that's a need that the consumer has. We have family practice services um, providing medical care to the consumers. For some facilities, again, they're lucky enough to have that on site where they contract with a family practice agency or they have a, a contract with another agency locally. Um, some of the RCFs provide uh, services for co-occurring disorders such as substance abuse where they have a substance abuse problem along with their um, chronic mental illness. Um, the majority of the people that are admitted to our facilities come directly from the acute care psychiatric units and that's usually after a, a period of about of a three to five day stay in that acute care setting. So they're not ready to live in the community yet, they, but they need a place to transition as they stabilize with the symptoms that they're experiencing. The RCF and the RCF PMI levels of care provide the necessary and needed supervision and structures as those individuals transition from that acute care setting back into community-based setting or services. The RCFs, um, we serve as a transition point from that acute care along that continuum of care. It's, it just is another step in that continuum to help people be successful and hopefully reduce that return back to the acute care setting. It also serves as an alternative to acute care when a person is living in the community and maybe they are in crisis. Maybe they don't need to be in that acute care setting so they will come in. There's an opportunity for them to come into an RCF in order for that stabilization to occur without being in the acute care setting. So I guess in some ways that means that we're serving that subacute level of care. There are some barriers to what we could be doing um, and I think Kathy's going to address some of those, but, but we do, we really do serve those individuals with, that are much more acute than they ever used to be. We're serving people that um, really require 24-hour supervision. Um, the the subacute level of care that has been talked about all along, um, there, there, again, there's barriers to to this model, but it certainly could is being done now in the RCS and the RCF PMIs and, and really does provide that transitional need. Um, RCFs are not institutions. They're treatment-oriented facilities that um, are efficient and affordable. These are, and what we do is we try and keep people there only as long as they need to be there. For the majority of the individuals that we serve, we're trying to transition them back into a less restrictive environment with some skills to help them be able to live um, a quality of life in the community with, with or without services depending upon what they need. So I guess um, to finish my, my part is that I really do feel like RCFs are an important part of that continuum of care and that without it we're going to be missing a huge piece of providing services to people with chronic mental illness. I'm Kathy Butler. I am the CEO of Partnership for Progress and the administrator of a 43-bed residential care facility called Willow Heights. Um, our, our agency is located in Atlantic, which is Cass County. The, what's in your packet is um, some information that I put together for the Judicial Work Group. Um, I, I had um, Judge Ricker saying, how do we know where to send people when we have to commit them? <laughs> And so I helped him out. Um, I do want to clarify that there are other licensed RCFs in the state. 
Um, I focused on the ones that are like mine that evolved from county care facilities. And so that's why you see that there are, the 99 counties are listed, and then I researched to find out which counties still have facilities that evolved from a county facility. I know there are at least two um, RCF PMIs that, are, that have uh, come into being um, separate from you know, the, the county structure. Um, and those, you know, I, I didn't try to include absolutely everything. I had to try and keep my focus on something that I was able to get the information on and that I was familiar with. Um, the, the focus of, of why I did this is a little different from what we're talking about today. Um, that's why this shows, uh, it shows the number of licensed beds, the average census, um, the percentage in each of these facilities that is the, of people who are there under mental health commitment. And then the, the last part is um, facilities that will consider persons who have these um, diagnoses and problems. Uh, sex offenders, arson, assault, they cut themselves or they're swallowers. Um, we get referrals for all of these things. Um, as you can see, some agencies will work with any or all of those. Some agencies will, will work with um, certain, certain ones. Um, the, the one thing that I went back and did when I knew that we were going to be talking to this group um, was I did, I did some totaling of this information. Um, and that's where we came up with from these 37 facilities, uh, all but one of the 37, I was able to get their information after um, bugging them profusely for a week. Uh, they re represent 1,419 people who are being served. And of those, 620 are there under court order. When you average the, the, the average size of a facility from this whole group, when you knock out the very largest and the very smallest and average everything else, it's 36 people. And I know that there has been a bit of focus that um, I've heard some rhetoric that, that some people seem to think that eight is a magic number for a facility should be eight or less. And I guess my question is who developed that magic number? And where are you going to find these eight-bed facilities? Because I'm not aware that they're out there. Um, the map that I provided to you shows where the RCFs that are alive and well and serving an awesome function are located. And as you can see, the state is pretty well covered. We have a, a, a few pockets here and there. But every quadrant has an RCF in it. And uh, you know there are some areas where there, there are some larger areas unserved but we already have a system in place that um, we, have, we have learned, we have evolved because we had to. Um, as, as things changed, as the ID population was um, moved into different services because of advocacy that was done at the state and federal level, um, and they became mandated for services, um, about the same time that was happening, we also had the move to deinstitutionalize. And another piece of that was that better psychiatric drugs became available. And so the people with chronic mental illness no longer had to be served in the four MHIs. And where, where those people ended up gravitating to were the RCFs. And when we first started this, um, you know, it was a new experience for most of us. 
but we have adapted. Um, I can go a step further than Diane. I have a semi-retired psychiatrist who is a contract employee of my agency. He is physically in my building three days a week and he is available to us 24-7. We're not unique. Lots of RCFs have, have gone to those lengths to find whatever connections they can make so that we are adequately providing services to people who are very chronically and persistently mentally ill. These are the people that just giving them a medication doesn't fix it. A lot of them have multiple symptoms. Uh, I, I've seen people come in on 15 different medications. Now, you know, we don't advocate for that, and our psychiatrist usually gets that list down considerably. But even with proper medications, some of the people that we serve are still very symptomatic. Um, those persons who, who can gain insight into their illness and learn to stabilize and, and learn to be in control of their illnesses, we provide as much training and education to them as we possibly can to move them on. Uh, most of us out there have other services besides our RCF. Uh, you know, we have a day program. We provide services to people uh, in the community. I think most of the RCFs out there are doing that now. We just want to make sure that that what we do is recognized and the value of what we're, we are providing is seen. Um, one of the things that is of concern to us is that the majority of our funding is county funding and we're not quite sure how this is all going to work <laughs> um, in, in the scheme of things because at my facility our services are 100% county funded and I serve 20 different counties. I have people in my facility from 20 different counties and I bill each of those counties for those services. Um, so, you know, that, that is a concern. We occasionally get people um, referred to us who are, are not Medicaid. They, they don't have Medicaid. They, they are not in the system uh, for Medicaid, but they are in the system for chronic mental illness. And so that's also a concern. Um, I guess now... I just want to add one thing that, that we didn't talk about is what we're seeing in our RCFs, too, are not just the persistent mental illness, but we're seeing a lot of medical diagnoses that are occurring at the same time. And for example, with a lot of the new medications that the atypical antipsychotics that people are on, we're seeing a lot of people starting to get diabetes. And so not only do we have to teach them how to manage their mental illness and, and how to learn about that, we're also trying to educate them and teach them how to manage those medical illnesses that are associated along with whatever else is going on with them. Parkinson's. Yes, mm -hmm. um, and then there was just one other thing that I wanted to mention, and that is we are still operating under Chapter 57, which is a, a, a very old um, administrative law <laughs> rule, and it, it, it wasn't designed when we were serving the populations that we're serving now. And so, you know, that's been a challenge. Uh, there, there are movements out there to write some new administrative rules, um, you know, to revamp some of the ones we have, to recategorize some of those of us who are, are providing the services that we're providing. But right now that still hasn't happened. And so we've had to be, um, it, it's been a challenge to serve the people that we're serving and still meet the statutory regulations that we have to meet. 
questions for us. Okay. Well, many of us, I'm sure, have gotten emails about this issue, and so I want the director to have an opportunity to have some comments here for us because there's a couple of different things. RCF is not a paid-for service. A residential care facility is a place in which services are provided, but the RCF itself is not a service, hence it's not on a core service list. So for, for those of you that don't know why RCF isn't listed on a core service list, it's because it's not a service, it's a place. That's the first point. Second point, they're also very different depending where they are, and one of the things our, our interim committee needs to think about is we may be at a place where we need to talk about licensing for RCFs, because RCFs, what she does at a care facility that's for treatment is very different than the ones we have popping up into our communities that are four beds that have high school level folks running the facilities versus trained people. And there's very, very varieties of differences. So I would like the director to talk about what he's seen and kind of his thoughts on where we might do with this particular issue. Yeah, first of all, <clears throat> I really believe that, uh, as they've explained, in today's world, they are serving a very important population and serving a very important function. Um, we, as uh, Representative Scholli has said, uh, they are a setting, and the real question is, what is the core service? Uh, Subacute is talked about as a core service. RCS certainly could provide the subacute service, and, uh, and, and frankly, probably do. Uh, right now. We just haven't clearly defined what subacute is, but the reality is that they are serving that, uh, that function. Uh, but RCFs also serve a wide variety of populations. Some of them, as these two uh, individuals, have begun to increasingly specialize and bring around them a staff that uh, is increasingly specialized. And that is going on with a number of uh, RCFs in the state. Uh, I think it is a question, as she has pointed out, is that there is maybe a, a time lag between um, the old administrative rules that were put in place, the old definitions of RCF, and the populations and the demands that are being put on RCFs today. So the question is, how do we close that time lag, both in terms of uh, maybe even the level of licensure and then the clarity of expectation around that licensure uh, to continue to reinforce the specialization? Uh, <clears throat> as we go forward into a regional system, I believe that the entities that are doing a quality job and making a difference in serving the people in that, uh, in that region uh, will continue to succeed. Uh, again, we're talking about a, uh, a variety of different funding streams coming together to, uh, to reach a, an end. So it isn't just a matter of uh, in the future, is it county money, is it state money, or maybe even uh, what does it take uh, to be able to draw down additional Title 19 money. So I, I believe that what you're doing has a future. Does it have a future under the name of RCF? I think that's a different question. What? Um, I'm looking at your chart here, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm unaware. I guess it brings up the question then, what's the difference between an RCF and a PMI? Because you don't have PMIs listed here except for Lynn County. 
And I think, I believe, yeah, I believe there are two on there that show that they have PMI beds. To be perfectly honest, a lot of us that have morphed into what we're doing now could be licensed PMI. PMI stands for persons with mental illness, RCF for persons with mental illness. Um, quite frankly, I, I, as I told the work group, uh, we've been told by, by DIA surveyors that we're basically doing everything that a, that a PMI does. It's just that it would be a matter of jumping through hoops to change our licensure and there's no more money there, and it's a whole lot of paperwork and work, so we haven't bothered to do it. And I think there's a whole lot of facilities out there that are in that same category. If we, with, with just a little tweaking of a couple of things, we could probably, many of us could be licensed PMI, and, uh, because that's, that's who we're serving. And um, I, I know that we do a little bit more significant treatment uh, in our agency than the, than the PMI that um, is in our community does. Uh, the other day, the psychiatrist said something to the effect of, well, you know, that agency can't handle some of the people that we're handling here. And I kind of smiled and I said, well, that's interesting because by their licensure, they should be doing more than we're doing, not less. And he was very surprised at that. So I, I think, you know, the answer is lots of us could go after that licensure. It's just that there's really no big benefit to doing it and when you're already um, you know pushing papers and chasing things every day uh, having to change your licensure is just one more thing to have to deal with um, as far as the licensure itself the staffing pattern is higher in an RCF because supposedly the acuity level is higher in the RCF PMI and so what you'll find is um, the requirements for hiring staff their credentials are higher um, their their staff staff ratio to client patient to staff ratio is higher. They also um, I can speak to the RCF PMI in Cedar Rapids Abbey Center for Community Care. That um, facility they do a, a tremendous amount of intense programming in order to stabilize the individuals that they're serving there, and they are coming from the hospital and are, have much much more. Um, difficult behavioral or um, psychiatric symptoms that they're working with with those individuals and and so in in our in our area what we try and do is they'll go to the PMI unit for stabilization out of the hospital if they meet that level of care and need that level of supervision and then hopefully transition to the RCF when they have stabilized even more so um, than they do when when they come straight to the RCF I'm looking at the availability of, of, of capacity, and I see some of the average censuses are they're full all the time, 100 percent. But yet at the same time, I see others who seem to, on a day-to-day -day basis, always seem to have maybe a few beds open. So that as we look at commitment and we look at the need for a sublevel rather than acute, could one say? There is a reasonable. You could have. There be. Re, it'd be reasonable to say, we could get access to that subacute level of care uh, without too much trouble. 
I think that you could, but you, but part, one of the barriers are the rules. Um, we have certain criteria that we have to meet before we that we have to meet before we can admit an individual to our facility. One is um, level of care certification by the physician. The other one is a test for tuberculosis and a, and a current physical. But as far as being able to just bring somebody in for a crisis bed at any given moment in time under the current rules would be very difficult to do. Um, if, we, if we could change the rules to accommodate that and do crisis beds and, for example, maybe have a – years ago we used to do that in an agency that I worked at where for up to 48 hours they could move from – when they were in crisis they could move to the, acute, the psychiatric unit from the RCF and we could hold them for up to 48 hours in, in an attempt to stabilize them. And then if they were stabilized, we could move them back. Otherwise, we went to a full admission. We cannot do that any longer. So if that was something that was allowed in the rules, I think those agencies that have the opportunity to do crisis intervention and would have the staff available that were trained to manage that, it certainly would be a possibility. I'm just looking for a way to be able to convert to address the need, and perhaps we could revisit the rules I, I, instead of building new new structures or identifying a whole, a whole new thing, we already have the existing facilities in place if they choose to do so, and we could do this thing kind of easier than it would be to do it all over again from scratch. And, and I think it goes back to looking at maybe looking at what's the definition of subacute and how would how would the RCF serve that subacute? Sub because we certainly could we certainly are serving people that if I were referring to a subacute, we have individuals in our facility right now that meet that criteria. From my from my professional opinion. A question for Dr. for Director Palmer um, on this RCF issue. Where are we going to be with the IMD Institute for Medical Disease issue? with RCFs over 16 beds, because that issue is a federally dr driven issue, about 16 beds or over. It's not um, us. Ultimately, so where are we with that? Ultimately, that would be your major barrier uh, for Medicaid uh, money. Now, there may be some things that Medicaid could pay for, <clears throat> like psychiatry time or certain services. Uh, they're not going to be, for the most part, paying for board and room, uh, and they're probably not going to be paying for a number of uh, services within something over 16 beds. But in some of our discussions with uh, some groups that are looking at uh, this area, uh, we've identified like psychiatry time that may be, be able to be paid for by Medicaid. So that would, I think, be part of the discussion. I, I would hope that one of the recommendations that comes out of this group uh, <clears throat> is that you ask us to really take what has been done on RC, on uh, subacute, uh, bring together a small group of people and operationalize that and uh, <clears throat> see what we can do to have that uh, available in place uh, in each of the in each of the regions and look at uh, what it would take uh, it may be a different mixture of money uh, for a certain RCF that is able to meet the qualifications and serve the function. Uh, I think they need to be uh, considered fully in that game. But it may not be Medicaid money that pays for it. A 
Thank Closing in on the end, uh, second to the last item is public comment. So if anybody from the uh, public would like to come up, line is getting long, good. Bryce, you're welcome. We're asked that you, uh, there, it, it, there's uh, several people, so if you could keep your comments short. I will. Any would be. Thank you. I'm Bryce Oakley. I'll be speaking on behalf of the Iowa Alliance of Community Mental Health Centers. I hope you've received our November 13th commentary on your uh, proceedings thus far, and it's that context for a couple of remarks that I'm going to make. That, re that commentary included some assumptions of not a lot of new money going into the system, certainly initially, and it pointed out the importance of balancing eligibility benefits or core services, administrative costs and provider issues, reimbursement and the like uh, as you go forward. Um, in the coming days, you're going to receive from us written uh, comment on what I'm going to mention right now, and that is some legislative agenda elements that I think would be useful for you to consider, particularly in 2012. Um, when I say an act, I don't necessarily mean that it needs to be done statutorily. We'll also be commenting on the importance and the availability of the administrative rules process as you divide the necessity for statutory direction and discretion being given to the state agencies, for example, that could be involved. There are six things that we would like to suggest to you. One, to set, and you will be setting the fund pooling mechanics in 2012. That'll be important. Secondly, to set the administrative and regional state functions, allocating those between regions and, and, and the state. We think that will be necessary in order for regionalization to go forward so that they know what the expectations are and the requirements for a particular region. Suggesting also that you start with a fiscal note on the recommendations that are in the regional work groups, uh, recommendations and division of functions uh, would be very useful. Uh, to all concerned, particularly to your colleagues as you as you make those funding decisions. Three, that you would set provider role expectations and particularly with regard to CMHCs, fairly qualified health centers. Um, this is needed in order for discussions among those entities, for example, to discuss merger and other contractual relationships. I would point out that it's my understanding that Missouri has very recently designated their community mental health centers as the primary care health home um, situs. Uh, you may want to consider how to encourage or per, uh, prioritize that as you already did in Senate File 525 with regard to those functions. That would be important to us. Four, to set some very, very specific tasks for the workforce group that you are going to appoint. As properly mentioned several times, those are the most difficult issues among provider scope of practice issues and the like. We would suggest tasking that work group with very specific things you want to have come back to them. As we cite in our commentary, those are very, workforce issues are critical to the success of this. Uh, five, I believe uh, that you need to make your decisions on the Federal Accountable Care Act. There are significant divisions even within this committee with regard to how that should go forward, and, and, and it does impact 
uh, mental health reform. Those will need to be made in 2012. And finally, to consider the transition schedules for brain injury for children as those work groups continue and considering whether or not it is useful to the work on the mental health redesign to consider a separate transition schedule for your intellectual disabilities issues that you've spent considerable time and properly so discussing here because there are differences, significant differences within those communities as to how fast and how those should move forward. Those would be our recommendations. We'll put them in writing for you. Thank you so much for your work and your time. from you uh, just yesterday and you're going to follow that up with a second memo yes okay thank you great number five was making the decision participation decisions on the accountable care act the federal act Shelley Chandler with the Iowa Association of Community Providers. I have three comments, just um, congratulating you on the work that you've already done. Um, so trying to end on a positive. With regard to the multiple occurring, the discussion that's been going on with each of the work group, I want to let you know that up until now, the primary focus has been on mental health and substance abuse, but beginning on uh, November 29th, we're holding our first training for all of our providers and opening it up to all IDDD and brain injury providers um, to have an all-day training with doctors Minkoff and Klein from Zia Partners. So that work is beginning and um, is on the fast track to get as many more providers involved with that multiple occurring uh, disorder focus. Secondly, through legislation this past year, thanks to Senator Reagan, uh, there currently is funding available for college direct supports to be available at no charge to providers, to all HCBS and habilitation providers. Uh, we don't have a contract yet. We're still waiting on that, but Director Palmer has assured me he will sign it post-haste. Um, that, uh, in addition to the work that's been done by Bob Bacon's group, we are going to be working with 15 providers more intensively to develop the outcomes that we talked about being performance-based and taking a look, analyzing, trending, and setting measures to increase um, not only staff retention, but to create a career ladder through the certification that was earlier mentioned, reduce hospitalization, track and reduce behavioral incidents and jail days, increase employment outcomes and community activities, and through the training um, with these 15 providers, we'll do a baseline this year and then set focus goals um, for improvement in coming years through that training program. In addition, also through legislation um, by Senator Reagan, of which we are waiting our contract, um, we will be um, offering provider technical assistance um, and with that, the focus again is on outcome-based performance measures to increase family outcomes, consumer outcomes, and systems outcomes. So we're well on our way, and I just wanted to take an opportunity to thank you for the work that was accomplished this past year. Thank you. Hi, my name is Rhonda Schaus. I'm a parent representative on the Children's Work Group. I apologize, I have a cold today. Um, I just have two comments. First of all, something that um, Senator Bolcom recognized earlier when the, with the Children's Work Group as far as the gaps in service. Um, I also am on the Mental Health Planning Council for the state of Iowa, 
and I had the pleasure of uh, working with the SAMHSA site visit when the SAMHSA monitors came in town. Excuse me. And um, during their exit interview, they recognized the state of Iowa has no entry point for the children's system, and there is not really a children's system. So there is a lot of room for improvement on that. Um, my other comment is something that Repre Representative Hedden said earlier, is talking about doing things right the first time. And with the Children's Mental Health Work Group, we have an opportunity to bring these children back into the state from out-of-state placements. It's very important that if we do not put these core services into place, um, have the family peer support services in place for them, and the intensive care coordination services, we're setting ourselves up for failure. So it's very important that I stress that to you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Sharon Lambert. I'm a consumer. I'm also the legal guardian of my grandson who's been diagnosed with ADHD, ODD, antisocial personality disorder, and possibly bipolar disorder. My story goes for 20 years. That's how old he is. I'm here to talk to you about the 229. I just want to share with you two experiences that I've had with that. The first was when he was 13 and his behavior became out of control and I was convinced to sign an involuntary civil commitment. At the hearing, I was not allowed to speak on his behalf. I asked to withdraw my signature because I found out then that he was going to be taken away and placed in residential care, which I did not understand that to be the case. I was told to sit down and be quiet. I lost him in the system for over three years. He was not allowed contact with me or most of the members of his family. Now, two years ago, uh, when he was 16, I did obtain legal guardianship, and he's been with me since then. We had two great years. Two years ago, he was facing some very emotional, traumatizing situations. He overdosed on his medication. I called 911 for medical assistance. It ended up that the hospital was not going to keep him, and so again, my husband and I went to the courthouse to file an involuntary civil commitment with the support of a Davenport police officer who had seen what was happening in the hospital parking lot where he was beating his head against the police car door, against the bars, and on the concrete. And yet they were not going to admit him. And I did not think that this is, this is one of those things I didn't think he needed long term, but he definitely needed to be there until we could get him stabilized. And in addition, I was very concerned about the amount of medication he had taken and what effects that might have on him. So we went, got the civil commitment. At some point, about 23 hours into the hospital, after he had been in five-point restraints for 16 hours and sedated with Haldol, um, Trazodone, and Cogentin, they decided to get a judge to dismiss my commitment as his legal guardian and released him to Scott County Jail. He was still in a very confused state from the restraints, the whole situation, and of course he fought. So he ended up with three felony charges of assaulting correctional officers. And I've been dealing with that for the last two years. So when you look at 229, try to remember that there, it's a two-edged sword. I don't know how you can fix it, 
but I know that it, there's definitely, you know, you need to look at when a civil commitment, involuntary, involuntary commitment, if there's a legal guardian that is making decisions for that individual because they are not, they do not have the cognitive thinking skills to make those decisions, there should not be a judge that can dismiss that commitment. And that hospital should be forced to provide crisis care management for that individual until they're stabilized. So I think that's, that's the main thing that I wanted to bring out was because we're talking about rewording that. And, you know, and when he was 13, I would have said, throw it out. But now when I needed it, it, it wasn't there. And so he ended up being on, he's been on the streets for two years, living everywhere. I've lost complete control of him. I think we're getting back to, I've got him into Vera French now. I think we're getting back into getting him a somewhat stabilized, but it, it's a nightmare. And, and in order to get services, by the way, he had to be adjudicated China and enter under a dual diagnosis in order to get it paid. So there's another way that, you know, there's always a way to get around and get Medicaid to, you know, cough it up. And he didn't need it, guys. He didn't need to be sent away. Good afternoon. My name is Bob Saylor. I'm president of PADS, which is Pure Action Disability Support in Lynn County, Iowa. I've sent you all either emailed or brought in personally uh, a letter to you. I'd just like to take a few minutes and read one paragraph to you that we feel is very important. We strongly support the recommendations that the core services be evidently based, produced, and the outcomes desired and be consistent with good stewardship of taxpayer dollars. And we also are opposed to including in the array of core services, existing residential services like ICFs and MRs, daycare programs, sheltered workshops. These do not produce the outcome we want. They, they are not cost effective. And most importantly, they are not consistent with Olmstead. We understand the concern that sheltered workshops are the only option currently available to many areas, particularly rural areas, and we support the idea of a gradual but steady transition over a definite and limited number of years, like five at most, in order to avoid leaving people with no services options at all. But it is time for Iowa to take its place among the many states that have moved away from the failures of so many of facilities. You, are all, you, you, all know, you also know that the failure to do so invites litigation and risk a finding of non-compliance with Olmstead by the U.S. Department of Justice. People with disabilities do not exist to serve the interest of administrators and staffs of outmoded services that do not respond to our needs and preferences. The time for change is long past. Thank you very much. Like I say, you, if you didn't get the letter today, it's in your email. Bob, is it okay if we post that online with all of our notes from today? Most definitely. Great. Thank you, Bob. Hi, Amy Campbell. I'm the. Can you hear me? 
I'm a lobbyist for the Iowa Psychological Association, and I just wanted to address one of the recommendations of the Judicial Work Group. They recommend um, eliminating chapter the definition of qualified mental health professional in Chapter 229 and thereby defaulting to the definition in 228. And we understand that there are inconsistencies in those definitions and um, do think that that needs to be addressed. However, there's one unintended consequence to just um, defaulting to that without making some changes in 229. Um, psychologists are licensed very differently than other mental health professionals. Um, chapter 228 um, requires has three requirements. The first is that you have a master's level degree in psychology or whatever your, your field is. Um, secondly, that you're licensed to practice in the state. And then the, the complicated one is the third requirement that you have two years of supervised post-degree clinical experience. Psychologists are, are licensed differently. We have two years of supervised clinical experience, however, they're not post-degree. One year is pre-doc, one year is post-doc, then we're licensed, or they're licensed. I'm not a psychologist. Um, so uh, that poses a problem in that if you default to 229 without making a, a change that clarifies that psychologists can practice upon licensure, um, you'll basically kick out all the psychologists from providing services in 228 and 229. And I don't think you intend to contract the level of mental health professionals in this state. Um, I didn't make copies of our comments, but our president of um, the association did email you either today or tomorrow, so you'll have these comments in, in more detail. But we would um, hope that you would look at some of the work that Representative Smith did this year. Um, he spent a lot of time and was very helpful in trying to address our concerns on that, and I would appreciate it if you can make those changes if you move forward with that recommendation. Thank you. I'm just going to pass around the letters that I'm going to be talking about. Uh, these are from the um, Iowa Mental Health Planning Council. And my name is Teresa Baumhoff, and I'm the chair of that group. And the first one I think you'll be delighted to, deli be delighted to know is uh, regarding the community um, community mental health block grant funds. Uh, right now there's state legislation which um, requires that 70% of the block grant funds go to um, community mental health centers. And in thinking through, <clears throat> well, first of all, the block grant purposes have changed. Um, there's a new application that, we're filling, that we fill out now. And if you look at the bottom page of this document where there's a little chart at the top. The four um, purposes of the block grant have changed to fund treatment and support services for individuals without insurance or for whom coverage is terminated for short periods of time, to fund services not covered by Medicaid, Medicare, or private insurance, to fund primary prevention, and to collect performance and outcome data. <coughs> and to plan the implementation of new services on a nationwide basis. Also, a direct on the next page on the back, it has the 13 target populations which are to be reached with both mental health and substance abuse block grant funds. 
um, with the mental health block grant funds, we originally just had two purposes or two target populations. One was for children with SED and their families, and the second one was adults with serious mental illness. And now they've expanded it to include 13 populations, as are listed there. So um, in view of the fact that we're all worried about where funds are going to come from on how to fund the system, we thought perhaps you might consider um, changing the purpose of where those funds go. And instead of having the funds given directly to the community mental health centers, to divide it up again, uh, among the regions. That way the regions would set the priority for what services they wanted to have. In all likelihood, the community mental health centers may end up with the funds just as they do right now. Um, but it would help them to plan based on the purposes for which the funds are supposed to be used would help them to plan and fund some of those services that they're not getting financing for anyplace else. Then the second thing regarding the block grant funds, we think it's tremendously important that there be additional emphasis given to um, grow consumer and family projects and services. So um, we're recommending that 10% of block grant funds uh, be utilized for that purpose. So once again, you already have it in state legislation where the money is supposed to be spent, and we would recommend that you repeal that piece of state legislation and institute these two changes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Director Palmer, uh, bec uh, the, she speaks of the federal government changing what the funds can be used for mm -hmm. over what we've different from in the past when we distributed this money to our community mental health centers. Does this mean then this year I will have to consider an appropriation to our community mental health centers in addition to address what they what they can no longer do or are they going to run short because they're going to have to spend this money perhaps in other areas? How will it affect the, the budget as far as our community health centers are concerned? I think we have to have a discussion with the community mental health centers. I was at a planning uh, meeting yesterday where one of the directors of a community mental health center did present uh, this recommendation. Um, Part of his rationale was uh, if community mental health centers are really doing a very valuable job within their region, they probably will get that money or more back through the region uh, based on uh, the, the job they are perceived as doing by the region. The second is uh, he was concerned about the amount of uh, uh, paperwork associated with some of these dollars. And third, uh, that some of the community mental health centers get a very, very small amount. Uh, so I don't know, I can't answer your question directly. I know that was because I asked him directly, how do you all feel about this? And that was uh, his response. Uh, so the question in terms of uh, what's the implications for your appropriation process, I think that's something we'll have to tease out with the community mental health centers to see what they believe the, the real impact is. Yeah, I'm just concerned as they've increased the list of 
of areas that need that they will have to address will it cause a dilution in some of the more basic services that they offered that's what i'm worried about okay uh, the second letter is a letter from the consul um, regarding the preliminary recommendations report and uh, i what just this first portion between the two um, green boxes um, that is a statement actually that we gave to the Iowa um, Council on Human Services also and so I repeated it for you because we do firmly believe that if we're truly going to be advocates that we have to say something we have to say things sometimes that people don't want to hear um, but we do endorse the recommendations of the work groups subject to the following comments and concerns. And the, the concerns are over funding, workforce, regions, legal settlement, treatment beds, accountability of the private health insurance industry. And then we want to point out that there are some missing pieces that have not been addressed yet. In funding, um, we support restoring the county's ability to levy. Um, and we have further points that we want to make on that. I want to also point out that additional funding for the system to continue this coming fiscal year, which is the very top piece, uh, to prevent that additional funding is needed to prevent system collapse, and that additional funding is estimated to be $56 million. So once again, we support the county levy. Under workforce, we think that's something that is so important and so critical to being able to implement redesign that that should be done immediately, that the workforce task force should be called together immediately and um, plans begun to address all the concerns there. Regions is, are the same thing that um, we feel that is in such an important piece of redesign that that should be implemented as soon as possible. Uh, we did also recognize that it would be important for law enforcement and primary care to be part of either the governing body or the advisory council if you're going to do collaborations for those types of services. Um, under legal settlement, um, we t uh, endorse what the adult mental health work group brought forward, which was that um, we just think that they need to be a resident of Iowa. Um, I mean, so much time and so much, so many dollars have been wasted trying to figure out which county should pay. And I don't know. I, I just, I, we just think that you should throw it out the window <laughs> and just say resident of Iowa. Wherever they present for services, get them into treatment as soon as possible, and let's get on down the road. Uh, and if there's some, some uh, legislation that needs to be corrected from the 1800s to get that changed, then back and figure out what that is. Treatment beds, uh, we feel that there's a collapsing system outside of the correction system. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. <laughs> Oh, they're getting they're all getting kind of punchy at the end of the day aren't they um, we also feel that treatment beds need to be addressed and we're not talking only about acute care we're talking about the development of um, um, 
other levels of beds like subacute and crisis stabilization. Um, also, uh, there are a couple other types of beds that haven't been mentioned that we hear um, that there is a shortage of all the time from parents and families, and that's detox beds and co-occurring treatment beds. Um, and I might point out that the new construction of beds for treatment beds is not occurring outside of the correction system. It's occurring inside the prison system, which is very troublesome to anyone who has a family member with mental illness. Next point on accountability of the private health insurance industry. Um, we just don't think that there's going to be a, a, a mental health system redesign unless you tackle it all. I, all the focus right now is on publicly financed um, services, uh, but until you address privately financed services, it's not really going to be complete. You're going to continue to get complaints. You're going to continue to get these um, really outrageous examples of uh, non-service to families. And so we've made some suggestions on what those measures might be because we still think that, think that there's something wrong with the picture that private insurance should only be required to cover people who are well. Um, missing pieces of the redesign report, uh, which were not identified for discussion or were not fully addressed, medication. Uh, you can, I could probably take anybody out here who has a family member who has medication who will um, talk about, will complain about what the medication rules are within Medicaid. Um, whether you're talking about taking away open access to mental health medications or whether you're talking about the new rule for 15-day prescriptions for new medications when most medications don't show any improvement or show any effect or show the full effect for four to six weeks. So why we're limiting it to 15 days is beyond our comprehension. Second, reason, uh, second missing piece is waiting lists. One of the reasons uh, we knew in Polk County that that there was a tremendous need that wasn't being met was because there were waiting lists being kept. And there has to be some kind of assessment tool for you to know as legislators and for the public to know whether or not there's uh, all the need is being met. And so we bring up the topic of waiting lists. Suicide prevention services are not mentioned anyplace either. There is a plan, um, evidently a draft suicide prevention plan within IDPH. But there is, as far as I know, there's really nothing going out to families and until a suicide happens. Um, there's really not practical information going out to families on, on what to watch out for and what to do. And um, I don't know whether you knew this, but in Iowa there are 330 suicides every year, so about one every day. If you contacted the county sheriffs, you'd, you'd find out it was a lot higher than that. But it's just the 330 that aren't. Uh, that are on uh, public records, and when you and then if you want to compare that to homicides, homicides are 50 a year. So we think that um, that's a public health crisis. If you take a look at the crisis hotline numbers from the VA, since uh, might be longer than two or three years, probably three or four years that they've had the, the VA crisis line, and they've had over 16,000 rescues from veterans and they're getting phone calls from 10,000 veterans each month, over 10,000 veterans each month. So that's a serious, serious problem. 
And um, I'm sure other people have already mentioned this, too, that we can still consider that there needs to be a rewrite of the commitment laws, because right now we have a crisis-based system based on suicide or homicide, and it should be more of a system where we um, can get them committed, but at um, their appropriate level of treatment. And those are our comments to the preliminary recommendations report. Teresa, this is just excellent, and the information you gave us uh, was tremendous. You and your commission have done a great deal of work, and we appreciate it. Thank you. And there's also something that um, Renee's going to be handing out. I don't know about you guys, but when I hear about the same topic being handled in six different work groups, I want to see what it looks like across the board. And so what I did is I made out a um, chart a one-page chart, and I took the core services across all the work groups and identified them. And I'd encourage you to do that, especially if you want it to be um, a disability system rather than all these different types of disabilities to kind of look across the board like that. Thank you. All of these forms will be online for the public as well, so anybody that's wondering what we're talking about or looking at, they will be online for your use. Okay. Thank you. Hi, Vivian Davis. I'm the executive director of Chatham Oaks in Iowa City. And um, Chatham Oaks provides services in the RCF and SCL uh, services in the community. And I, I think that my colleagues, Diane and Kathy, did an outstanding job of uh, talking about what RCFs do today. And I, I uh, agree with everything that they said. I was also encouraged by Director Palmer's comments and uh, the discussion here about RCFs. I did have one comment that um, uh, I don't think was brought up during that discussion was um, we often see people who move out of the RCF. They may have been there for a while. They move out into the community, into a, um, either an apartment or sometimes even an ACT program. They decompensate. They go back in the hospital. They come back to the RCF. And we have a few people who have done that more than once. And so when you're looking at um, providing services differently in the RCFs, I would caution to be careful about having them be time-limited services. Um, as Kathy talked about, I think all of us do have a few people in our um, RCFs who are just you know, chronically, persistently mentally ill, and they need that structure. And um, you know, we've tried. There's a few people we've tried in, in apartment settings, and they just they just can't make it. And it, it's just because their illness is so persistent. So I would encourage you to keep that in mind. Um, I would also really encourage you to include. RCF staff in the discussion as, as um, subacute services and crisis intervention services and whatever happens with RCFs, um, I hope that we can be included in that discussion. And then um, on another note, I would like to talk about the children's services. I have a son who is 17 and he is, he has a chronic mental illness. He, um, in the last 
two plus years. He has been hospitalized four times. He's been in two PMIC placements. And between those placements, we had the, the Children's Mental Health Waiver Services at Home. And I can just testify to so many things that were talked about today. Um, everything that they said in the children's group, I just totally agree with. Um, it's just so important to keep kids close to home. I can't emphasize that enough. I remember when, when Sean was first um, uh, recommended to go into a PMIC. We live in Coralville, Iowa, and we were told that he would be placed in Sioux City. And I, I think I cried for 24 hours. I was, we were just devastated about having him be that, that far from home. And then we were fortunate to have a spot open up at Tanager Place, which was in Cedar Rapids, and that was great. He's been living now at Orchard Place in Des Moines for uh, just about a year. He was admitted there in January, and my husband and I have been driving to Des Moines every weekend to spend the weekend with him and um, also to participate in family therapy and, and whatever we need to do to help him. Um, then I'm finding out that, you know, I'm a service provider and I, I'm pretty knowledgeable about services, but boy, everything that people are saying is so true about children's services. I just like called every place and everybody I could think of to get help. Now I'm finding out um, my son is finally stabilizing and is on the right mix of meds and it looks like he may be able to be discharged in January. And we're just thrilled about that. But then come to find out he's gonna have to go back on the waiting list for the waiver. So there is a possibility that he will go from being in highly structured services for almost two years to coming home and going back to school and having no services. And to think that, that my husband and I would have to take him back to the hospital, just, it is just not good. It's, it's not good at all. So I'm desperately calling people to try to see what I can get arranged. Um, I, I would say that service coordination is definitely severely lacking. That's something that's very, very needed. Um, and then I'm also worried about transition services to adulthood. You know, that was talked about too, and I, I'm not even sure how that's gonna work yet, and I'm, I'm in the field. So I don't know how people navigate the system who don't have any experience at all. So I'm really glad you're looking at that. Thank you. be brief. I know everyone's ready to wrap it up. Um, my name is Sherry Nielsen and I'm with Easter Seals and um, I wanted to um, comment on the case management, conflict of case management. Um, we provide 15 different service lines and we also have a case management unit um, and while we would agree that conflict case management is important, I think the more important issue is that case management is person-centered and involves the entire team approach. Um, we serve about 600 people in our case management um, unit and our case managers carry a caseload of an average of um, 26 clients. They see them monthly in their homes, at, in their work, and their day programs. And I think that that's really the most important thing is that there's a relationship and it's person-centered. And then on a positive note, as we're 
looking at the system and trying to make improvements, I would like um, you to consider the things that are really good in the system and things that I don't want to lose as a provider and as someone who cares very much about um, the population that we support is the ability to be creative and innovative. I know that this may not be true across the state, but we've experienced that as being um, a provider in Polk County, that we're encouraged to utilize best practices, we're encouraged to look other places to see where we're able to get results. And that's really important that we don't, um, while core services are important, um, I hope that we will have flexibility and encouragement to continue to be creative and innovative in our service delivery so we can continue to meet needs um, as they come up with our families and our communities. That's it, thank you. I think, Mark, before you want to take off, I think we do want a discussion among the members of what your expectations are for the next meeting. We mentioned just briefly that LSA and caucus staff will be getting together to identify consensus items. I don't think we want to put all of that on them, so I'm encouraging the members to participate um, and I also am encouraging the members to cross the aisle and the rotunda to the other chamber to have a discussion on where you think you might get support or if you have questions. There, um, everyone is relying on us to have a system that will be new and that will be comprehensive. We, we don't have an option. This is a system that, um, as of July 2013, will not be in existence. So we have to do something. And we don't want to waste our time not doing a good job. So it is on our shoulders, the 12 of us. And I think our colleagues are going to be looking toward us. And I think there are some caucuses that are going to be a little bit more uh, friendly than others. And I think we'll have to try to provide information to you and to your members on why something might be better than they think. We want to... No. No, 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 no. As we go... deep into this do we go or a lot of the the gaps and uh, that we like to see filled and some of the improvements in the system do we leave that up to the department the departments to deal with or do we actually have to put that down in writing too I want to know where the legislation ends and perhaps through the rule process it begins uh, representative Schultier talked and I talked about this very briefly it is our intention to get a bill out of this committee that represents what a cons the, the consensus that we can build out of the six of us. I don't know how deep that's going to be, but then I think that's just really the beginning. And I think then, then we will have to add to that and, and, get, and, and be as specific as we want during the legislative process. But it is incumbent upon us as, as committee members 
to get something out that we can give to our members, all 150 of them, so that they have a place to start, so that we have a bill that off of that is identical at the beginning. And then there's then there's magic, you know, and sometimes it's black magic, and sometimes it's, it's nice, and and that's the process that we go through. But I'm committed, and so is Representative Schulte, something out of this uh, process, and our, our committee, as far as we can agree on before the uh, before we uh, convene in the legislature, and I know that. Have some very specific ideas on what you, you think you want and what we need. What funding, uh, definitions, uh, those are the things that we're going to be spending some time on on uh, December 19th. And at the end of that, I hope we will be able to make a series of recommendations that will um, allow uh, John and the LSA to just like to say that um, from my perspective there's some folks around this table with a lot of expertise in various different pieces of of the system and so I know I've talked to representative Smith um, he's got some very specific ideas related to chapter 29 229 and 25 and some of those other chapters on committals that if he doesn't fix it who will because that's his expertise that's what we're here to do and some of those are not going to be easy discussions but I don't think we need to back down because it's not easy I mean, there's some definition chapters that are really messed up on the qualified mental health part, of which I am one. Representative Smith is one. Representative Fry is one. And they're really messed up. And so we really need to spend some time. And it, those are some of the code pieces that is going to take some time to write. And so it's, it's a lot of work for the, for the folks to fix. But talking about potentially, like, wrapping together the, um, the various chapters on the court committal process instead of having them in four chapters. Maybe they don't need to be four chapters. Maybe it needs to be more centralized where it makes some sense those kinds of things they're not very pretty not very exciting but are very necessary to move the system forward the same concept then will apply with home and home health uh, not home health but health care and ho health homes i guess i should say and where you want to go with affordable or with um accountable care organizations and home health and all of that kind of stuff i mean we have to talk some of that stuff's not even in the code so to start crafting that legislation of where we want the system to be with home with the health models, we need to be talking about that kind of legislation and those kind of pieces. So yes, there's some pieces that I think are going to be more contentious on the funding side of that, but there's a whole lot of stuff that's just really good system changes that I know Representative Smith has been working on for a very long time that I would hope that we all as a group could get on board and understand enough to be able to explain to our colleagues to move forward. And so those are the ideas today. If you've got some ideas like that that you want John to know that we want to work on, I'm, I know Representative Hedens has a piece on changing language, um, on using the word mental retardation and rechanging that. I would love to see that to come out of this group as a piece that we can fix, all except for the one definition place where we right now can't. Um, but those kinds of things. If there's some changes like that, it could be a very big bill. But um, I think it's necessary because otherwise we've just ignored it for a long time. And there's also pieces on the PMIC that built that part of the code hasn't been touched since 1978, I think. And it's wrong. So we need to probably look at that one and go, okay, it should be fixed. Those are the ideas. So that's just what I'm thinking, but I'm open to your suggestions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I hope, I mean, thinking about next meeting, what the agenda for next meeting is, um, I, I assume next meeting is figure out what we have consensus on. 
Uh, I don't really see LSA being able to read our minds at this point about all the things that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff here. They, I'm, I'm not sure they're prepared to simply try and figure out what we all agree on. So I see the next meeting as the beginning of the bill draft, right? Um, the, uh, I, I think I would agree with, with uh, Representative Schulte. There's a bunch of stuff that probably doesn't cost money in, to clean up the code and modernize code. Uh, then there's a whole bunch of stuff that costs money, including reinstating uh, the, the, the local property tax levy. Because I think we've heard from about everybody that cares about the system that uh, we can't walk away from, we're not prepared to walk away from $125 million. So I'd like to have some conversation about how, how people think we're going to get that back. Um, and then I'd li- I, think it, I think it would be important for us to talk to our leaders between now and December 19th uh, about their interest in moving ahead next year because I I think that as as the director said earlier talking about a five-year time frame that we need to we need to this committee I hope can propose a five-year plan uh, with a five-year funding picture uh, that would describe how we're going to uh, invest in all the wonderful things we've heard need be done. Um, and I think trying to get some sense from our leaders, and I'd say to the director from the governor's office, uh, what they're thinking vis-a-vis 20, 2013 uh, appropriations going to look like um, to, to begin the process of investing. Um, you talked about $47 million to buy out Title 19. I don't know if we've got that's a starting point, um, but that doesn't that doesn't build much. My my overall concern is we're, we've got a lot of momentum, we've raised a lot of expectations, and without some resources, um, I'm nervous about making some big redesign that turns the current system on its head uh, with no new resources. So I would hope that we could. I agree with Senator Hatch. I don't think. Anything's going to move forward without a bipartisan push by all of us. Just isn't going to happen. Um, and so I hope that when we get together on December 19th, we can talk about ideas for the bill and resources and maybe have some sense from our leaders on uh, what they want to spend next year, uh, assuming it's more than 59999. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, I, I, too, I guess for the next meeting would wa- want to have that discussion on the funding. I think it's imperative that we that we do that. But I also think we need to have just even more clarity as to the proposal itself. Um, you know, just listening to the folks that have come today and the emails that I've been receiving um, and just myself as a parent is figuring out, well, what is that local access point? What is that going to look like? I don't think we have that quite fleshed out yet. Um, so I do think we need, do need to have more detail on that. That's going to come, when that comes to us, it's going to be easier for us to sell to our caucus members um, because that's probably one of the questions that they're going to get is they're going to get their local folks that are going to ask, you know, well, I'm used to going to 
you know, my, my local county, somebody in my local county to doing that, what's going to change? Is it going to change or is it not going to change? Is it a person I actually see or is it going to be more of a virtual, um, you know, all Internet-based, um, uh, which I think would be a challenge. Uh, it's a challenge now within the system, and you increase it to this particular population who may not have Internet access could be even a greater challenge. So I do think we need a little bit more clarity in that. Um, I do think we do, uh, Representative Smith has talked about it quite a bit today, the appeal process. And so I do think we need to have further discussion in that. Is it an appeal process within the region area? Is it region to region? Is it from the, you know, from the consumer to the provider or the provider to the state? I'm just, I think we need to have some more discussion as to what that may look like. And then I also think we need to have a discussion amongst us as to what we mean by equity within services. Because if you have the levy put back in and that you let regions or counties that could potentially levy more or find out more resources, well, then you don't have equity anymore. So are you looking at the exact same services across the state? Are you allowing some regions or some areas to have more services or not? And if you are, that's fine. Just have to know that then you're not going to have a total equitable system so that we're just all in the same terminology base. Uh, I have to get going here in a minute. Uh, Senator Sauters and I have a forum back in Marshalltown, uh, so I do need to duck out for that. But um, I think that there are some good options on the property tax issue and the uh, participation from um, uh, the counties, um, and I do feel, as Senator Volcom said, that there is uh, a belief among the 12 of us that uh, we cannot continue this system without uh, partnership with the counties. Um, and so I would like to see us, um, w with that belief that I perceive with everyone here, to continue looking at these issues and do some um, joint brainstorming where we uh, get together, we look at the possible options here um, that hopefully come out with a more equitable system for those monies coming into the services. Smith, would you be recommending a subcommittee of this committee to sit down together with the property tax expertise and figure it out? Well, I think it's it's bigger than us. Um, that um, I haven't been known in my caucus of, as being a property tax expert, and um, I think Senator Bolcom probably comes the close in the uh, group that we have. I think that we may want to look at some other uh, folks from a from Ways and Means. Um, and uh, with that kind of expertise coming into working on this.